Aloha, guys. Welcome back to the Vicious Cycle Podcast, Whiskey, Women, and Water. I'm your host, Kenton Gear, and beside me today, I have a very special guest. Nah, not really that special, but but it, it's my guest. It's uh, Joe Byron. Why don't you say hi, Joe? What's up, everybody? Joe. Ah, thanks for having me, man. Um, normally, someone says, thanks for being here first, I think. Don't they? Or no? Um, is that the flow? I don't know. I don't listen to these things. <sighs> No one's going to listen to this one anyway, so it doesn't really matter. That's what makes me so comfortable about being here. <laughs> it sounds like you know my listening audience. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, um, I'm a uh, photographer and uh, crewman. Um, worked over here in Kona for most of the last about five years, since 2016. Um, grew up in North Carolina. Fishing for a little bit of everything over there, but uh, the offshore species, marlin and uh, billfish, um, are definitely what I prefer. Um, big tunas and marlin, and so that's what brought me out here to Kona. How I met you, and uh, yeah, that was yeah 2016 that I came out here. Um, just kind of moved back to North Carolina at the end of last year with all the COVID dramas, and um, yeah, back here in Kona now for a little bit. Come visit and work on a few things out here and get some days in in the wintertime. What is this COVID drama you speak of? What What is that? Oh, you know, it was a little thing, uh, something with a bat, I think. And then it ended up where uh, Hawaii shut down for, what was it, six months? Seems Eight like, months? A year? Six years? Seems like forever at this point. It honestly. does seem like forever. That seems like a good sum up. Something happened with a bat and now we're all out of work. Yep, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Exactly. We, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, last year we had hardly any charters cause nobody could come do a, uh, two week quarantine and, uh, yeah, it was tough to, tough to find some work. Yeah. So first of all, I guess I'd have to ask, how did you first end up here? Like, how did that happen? How did you make that transition from, uh, North Carolina, right? Yep. To Kona, Hawaii. How did that happen? So I used to work in the uh, film industry for a while. Uh, Adult up, films? Uh, sometimes. Now it was, uh, yeah, doing uh, features. I was just on the side, really. That was where the real money was at, though. <laughs> Should have, or I'd be owning my own boat instead of working on them now. Uh, but no, I worked on uh, movies and TV shows, uh, mainly based out of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. So did, um, yeah, everything from small commercials to multi-million dollar movies um and was doing that for a while they cut some tax incentives out there i had to move to uh atlanta georgia with that job um went pretty well in north carolina where i could fish on the side and and still uh kind of get my fix on that but was was doing movies and um so when the show that i was working on was a fox tv show at the time moved to atlanta um i never lived in a place that was landlocked before i was pretty uh pretty miserable, honestly, um, being away from the water and driving like six hours back to North Carolina on the weekends and stuff to, to, uh, go see friends and kind of get out fishing and stuff like that. And, uh, had always wanted to get back into the, the fishing game full time again, and, um, had some video and photography things that I wanted to do, um, around Marlin fishing specifically started reaching out to, uh, people all over the world from Africa, Costa Rica, Kona, um, and ended up one of those people was, uh, Chris Donato, uh, who was out in Samoa at the time. And, uh, there was a Marlin magazine article actually that, um, kind of about him catching the first grander out of Samoa and his program over there. And, um, 
I was just looking for somewhere there's big fish and really looking for somewhere kind of a little bit off the grid um, to go and fish and check out and uh, somewhere where some photo opportunities and, and uh, just to kind of see somewhere different and travel and just kind of just sending ran random emails. I'd never met Chris before and uh, he responded and kind of seemed like he was into the same kind of things I was. Um, the big Marlin thing was, was, was his deal and um, what I was interested in as well. Um, he had a surf resort over in Samoa, but he was actually in the process of trying to move his boat, um, was now the benchmark, uh, 37 Merritt over to Kona. And uh, yeah, we kind of hit it off, started exchanging some emails, met down in Florida um, and kind of talked about uh, some stuff about coming out to Kona and, and how to get the boat over here was a whole, a whole another situation, uh, moving it from Western Samoa to, to Kona. Um, and we worked all that out and uh, yeah, ended up a few months later. That was March of 2016 when I first got in touch with him. I think we first started exchanging emails and then by July, I think I was here right around 4th of July on, uh, in 2016. And that's when I moved out here till, um, still been back and forth, but till the end of last year. So yeah, that's how, uh, kind of little shorter version of, of how I got out here. Um, of yeah, just went from film industry to, uh, to yeah, back into fishing. What was your earliest fishing job? Like, how did it, was there a fishing job before the film industry? Yeah, yeah. I used to work on boats uh, back in North Carolina. Did some, uh, made it on some boats from head boats. Started off on, on head boats. My very first job, um, very first day working on a boat was on a boat called the uh, Carolina Princess. It was a 100-foot head boat out of uh, Moorhead City. Moorhead City is kind of where I, my parents had a place there, where I grew up fishing with my dad was into it, um, so he's really what got me into the to offshore thing. All my family fish, but especially my dad. Um, we had a lot of friends that ran charter boats and stuff, and um, I used to go out with a lot of those guys as much as I could. Um, and um, yeah, really wanted to work on the boats, all those guys on the waterfront, uh, especially in Moorhead. You see them coming in, and it's like a kind of boardwalk type situation almost down there, uh, waterfront deal where all the boats back in, and you know, you used to always be like crowds of people coming to, to look at the fish and everybody's, you know, tossing onto the dock. And those guys were like, you know, that was what I wanted to do when I go down there and saw them. I was, you know, super pumped, obsessed with anything fishing. But, uh, my first job, um, one of this guy, uh, guy, Dale Britt, who actually just retired from running the sensation down in Moorhead. Um, good family friend of ours, um, was running that boat and he, uh, helped me get on with, with Woo Woo just filling in a couple days, uh, a guy named Woo Woo Harker was the uh, captain there. Uh, passed away uh, some years ago now, but kind of a legendary headboat guy there. Um, and so I went out with them, and uh, that was kind of my first first taste of, um, that was mostly grouper, snapper, a um, little bit of everything. I did some trolling trips, but um, that was just a kind of fill-in thing with them. And then I ended up doing, uh, I was about 18 or so just after that. Um, Worked on some inshore head boats. Um, that was really my first, like, kind of full-time gig in the summertime uh, before, right out of high school, and then um, when I was in college doing um, doing those kind of inshore head boats and some offshore stuff, too. For the people at home that don't know, can you explain to them what a head boat is? Yeah, a head boat is like a, uh, called party boats in some places, but it'll be a larger boat where you can usually walk around uh, 
pretty much all the ones I worked on, you can walk around the whole uh, side, bow, everything. And it's typically um, just bottom fishing for the most part, and you're paying by the head. Whereas most of our boats that we're running, like here in Kona and other places are uh, like six pack type boats. You're usually taking up to six guests, uh, plus a captain and crew. Those are, we take up to a hundred. I would say our average trip on some of those, I've worked on a few different rigs like that and most of them we'd take anywhere from like you know if it was a light day maybe you'd have 20 or something like that on a half day type trip but more often it'd be 40 60 sometimes 75 or so people uh on that boat and uh it's a really good way to learn how to untangle lines really quick and (laughs) bait a lot of hooks and try to keep up with people's stringers and their numbers and you know try not to lose people's fish or mix them up and uh, it's a lot going on all day. And, uh, yeah, it was definitely, that was, you know, it used to be, um, that was kind of the way you had to get started. And if you could hack it doing that, then you could get a job trolling values and, you know, fishing for marlin and stuff like that. But that was kind of like the stepping stone and what you had to do to kind of pay your dues back then. I also started on headboats. I had my first headboat job in New Hampshire on a boat called the Thumper when I was 13 years old. So I also worked my way up through headboats. So I can appreciate that. I am thinking of one headboat story that I've heard in particular for the folks at home that may be interested. Uh, You are a very well-known cook in these parts, and I know of a legendary corn, was it clam or corn chowder story uh, where you provided this amazing uh, clam chowder to many people. Would you mind sharing that recipe or Oh yeah. Yeah. That was a, uh, that, yeah, that was one of, so that company that I worked for, um, early on, this was a, another one. So we did, um, a lot of like inshore trips. We do, we did inshore trips in the morning, sometimes head boat, um, style like that. And then the, the company had a few different boats. So one of them was doing dinner cruises, lunch cruises, stuff like that. And we take people on like Harbor tours. So yeah, we did um, clam chowder was one of was one of the things, and uh, people loved our clam chowder. Um, it was uh, locally made by a uh, uh, old lady from down east that would bring it to us every morning, and um, so yeah, people we'd serve it for lunch, and people uh, really loved it, and that's what we told them. And what it was was uh, Campbell's clam chowder that depended on how many people and how many cans happened to be on the boat. If we had like twenty people show up last minute. We'd have to throw a whole bunch of extra water in it to uh, really water it down and make sure it went for uh, the 40 people that we had instead of the uh, 25 that we planned for. So it got rave reviews. People always asked us about it. And uh, thanks to that old lady down east for serving that, uh, bringing us that clam chowder every morning that didn't exist. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. But, you know, that's kind of like one of those perception things about like seafood, because I know like a restaurant without dropping any names, it has like the best location ever in Honolulu, but like some of the worst seafood. But people are just always like, man, isn't that place the best? And I'm like, no. Yeah. But just like the idea that it's on the dock, they just have this perception that it's just like the oh, yeah. best. Yeah. No, so or this location. So. That is just kind of funny how our minds can kind of trick us on that. When you're looking at water and you've got water all around you and you're eating seafood, you know, you just assume that, oh, it just must have come from right there. You're picturing somebody just, you know, tossing these shrimp and these snappers and stuff straight in the back of the restaurant from boats that are pulling up there. But probably came in on a truck from... (laughs) Came out right out of the old old Campbell's From a plane or something, you know. That's hilarious. So, you're working on headboats. 
How do you find yourself in the movie industry? So I'd always been, um, I went to college for um, journalism and uh, media production was kind of what they, what they called it of doing. Got into some of the video stuff um, when I was in college, but really my idea at school was, you know, I grew up obsessed with fishing and uh, was into surfing too and um, read Marlin magazine, um, any kind of fishing magazine, some of the local stuff, um, back in North Carolina and, um, kind of thought of that as like, oh, okay, this writing for, uh, like Marlin or any of these fishing magazines this is a way maybe I can like make it a, other than just being a captain and crew. It was like, oh, maybe I can do this as a ticket to go like around and fish all these places that I see in these magazines and stuff. And, uh, so I went to college with that kind of idea in my head, um, is using that with fishing and, and other stuff that I like to do. And um, the uh, video kind of came along as I was there, um, where we were, that was kind of part of some of the stuff we do in that media production major. And uh, got into that um, there, stayed an extra year to do a full video production major. Um, and Wilmington, so that I went to school at East Carolina and about, two hours south of uh or two or three hours south of greenville is, is wilmington had some friends down there is on the coast i knew i was going to move somewhere by the water um and was working on some boats there right out of college uh crewing on um some boats there and they had a film studio um that was uh really that was kind of a good time for movies there where there's more they shot like one tree hill and um uh, I was a fire starter, a bunch of other, uh, some well-known movies in Wilmington, um, over time. And it was kind of another time where film was blowing up there again. So, uh, it took me about a year to get a foot in the door there. Um, but ended up getting a job on first, a little ABC family movie called, uh, teen spirit. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful movie. If you get a chance, it sounds like it. Oh man, it's pretty bad but uh it was won uh, a lot of awards from yeah tons of, tons of awards. <laughs> Might have won a razzie or something i don't know it uh but uh it was no it's great it's great experience it was a great experience and <laughs> when you uh, say no, really slow like yeah. that you can tell it means it's really meaningful yeah. it really was for me although honestly it was uh yeah the product on the screen might not have uh been the best but yeah so i i ended up um took forever um but uh, yeah, I got got kind of a foot in the door and started started working on uh, movies and TV shows there, um, and that's what um, during that time it was just a good time to kind of get in, and things started blowing up there. Um, one job kind of led to another. Um, I and it's tons of hours there, so it definitely cut into my time on the water. Um, in between, one thing I did like about it once I got more into it was once I got kind of known and I could get a. Uh, knew I could get jobs more back to back. I could take a little bit. I wasn't as stressed out to take the first job that came along right after one project would end because it's kind of like you know you might be on one show for for three months or it could be you know something bigger eight nine months. A TV show could be kind of recurring and um, when you have those breaks in between projects, you know that's when I'd really get some fishing in or could go take a trip or something like that and. Um, so yeah, I was uh, kind of doing that in between. Um, the schedule worked out pretty good, um, but I had a chance to work on some cool stuff. Um, Iron Man 3 was uh, probably the most well-known thing. Uh, the Conjuring um, did three seasons of a show called Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Um, and then yeah, a lot of, a lot of smaller stuff. A movie called Tammy um, that we, we shot down there was, was really, really fun. So 
um, yeah, I got to do a lot of cool stuff in that, in that industry as well. Let me ask you, as long as we're on that industry, you got any really good celebrity stories or you got any, what is your best story from your film career? Oh man. Um, let's see what would be the best. Um, probably I got to work with some really cool people. I can't, I'm trying to think of something, uh, specific and something that I could talk about. Um, <laughs> that's the catch, isn't it? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the catch. Uh, man, I got to work with, um, a couple, like as far as celebrities, like, I was like a personal assistant to a couple people there. Um, Susan Sarandon, I got to work with her. Um, How was she? And uh, she was awesome. She couldn't she couldn't be cooler. Um, shout out to Susan Sarandon. I'm sure she's listening to the Vicious Cycle podcast. Um, yeah, she. It's funny. She sent me a message earlier. She, I figured, she, yeah, she's really been digging it. She yeah. heard some fishing stories. I can promise you that. She yeah. definitely heard. Anybody that worked with me learned a lot more about big game fishing. She than actually I did. recommended. I got a text earlier. She recommended that I interview. I was you, wondering so. how I got the call. That's you know, how you got the call. Like, I mean, it's not really forever, Kenton. What's going on yeah no she she put in a good word for you and that's how you find yourself here today i wasn't going to do that but you know i mean as long as you brought it up shout out to her yeah no she uh no susan was uh susan was great i was lucky to work with a lot of really good people but her uh yeah the last one of my favorite ones was the very last day that uh of that movie of that movie tammy um we were supposed to fly out of um we finished the movie in niagara falls new york so we all we had like a really tight knit crew. We probably shot that movie. Oh, I can't remember what year that was. Twenty fourteen, fifteen, something, somewhere around that neighborhood. But um, yeah, really, really good cast, really good crew, and finished in Niagara. We all went out. We a lot of us stand at a casino there um, where they put us up at, and we went out and partied pretty hard at that casino the night before, and uh, got after it pretty late. I woke up, was like scrambling, woke up like five minutes before I'm supposed to be at this photo shoot and just throw my stuff in a bag, run out the door, get to the photo shoot, still super maybe hungover. I don't know if I'd reached that stage yet. And, <laughs> still uh, yeah, still probably more accurate. Oh, <laughs> uh, Susan, what's going on? Sorry, I'm running late. Uh, I don't care. It's all good. Don't worry about it. But uh, yeah, we just need to figure out how we're getting back to New York. So I was supposed to fly back to New York with her. And drive a car from the production back from New York City back to North Carolina. And she's like, yeah, you just need to, I, I don't care, just, uh, you need to figure out how to get us from uh, here to uh, New York City tonight because our flights got canceled. So I think I'm just going to a photo shoot and kind of hanging out and then we're getting on a plane and I'm hanging in New York for the night and that's it. And you're and, drunk. Yep. Yep, I'm uh, coming coming off being drunk and uh, at the very least. And uh, yeah, so I end up uh, the next... Two hours frantically on the phone from everything from helicopter companies to rental cars. Our production offices in North Carolina and in um, New York at the time. Um, trying to book other flights. Trying to see if there's private planes. Like everything you can think of transportation wise. And there wasn't anything really. The weather was bad. All the flights were canceled. And she had to get back to a wedding the next day. So I ended up, uh, we ended up, the production rented us a car. Uh, like a Dodge Charger or something like that, that Sweet. we, uh, yeah, me and Susan Sarandon piled into uh, her this, uh, Dodge Charger right after this photo shoot. I did have some time to sober up uh, <laughs> during this photo shoot, by the way. I don't think that's true. Um, I had, uh, <laughs> I had, uh, yeah, I had to scramble and find a phone charger, I remember, that that uh, got lost somewhere in the mix, and uh, to make sure I could navigate us across there, and uh, 
yeah, I think it was like an eight hour trip that day that we drove from Niagara Falls to New York City. And um, then, uh, yeah, went out with uh, some of her friends that night in New York City and kind of did it all over again. So once we got there, but yeah, it was like driving rain through uh, eight hours of pretty much across the entire state of New York. Um, yeah, it was a, uh, it was kind of a fun, uh, fun little trip, but yeah, it was a whirlwind of a, uh, 24, 36 hours, whatever it was there. But, uh, yeah, it was an awesome show and yeah, she was great. Cool, man. She was feeding me sandwiches across, uh, New York while I drove. So it's awesome. Yeah. Pretty nuts. That's a pretty neat experience. Can't say that too many people got to ever do that. So we got out of the film career or, uh. You still ever talk to any of those people? Those people ever contact Yeah, some you? of those people. Yeah, yeah. I um, probably not as good as I should be about keeping up with uh, a few of them, but yeah. Uh, another guy, Tom Meissen, that I worked with off Sleepy Hollow. He and I worked together for three years. Um, he's another awesome, awesome dude to to work with, and got to be real tight with him and and talk to him one time during uh, the last few months. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of the other crew guys and stuff like that that I that I worked with, um, you know, still keep up with. Not anybody as much as you, you'd like to, but uh, that's kind of the main thing that I do miss about that world is a lot of the, the really cool people that you, you work with and come in contact with. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of kind of similarities with, with that industry and the fishing industry. It seems long ways apart, but it's uh, people that really enjoy what they do. And it's kind of a traveling circus everywhere you go, you know, whether it's you're working at, at home or working on the road. Um, everybody, for the most part, enjoys... Uh, you know, works really hard and plays really hard when they, you know, it's, it, we're working your, your days usually based on 12 hour days. And sometimes I think I've done almost 20 hours before. Um, you know, it's not the kind of red carpet shit like you see on TV or whatever. It's really more like you're going in there and grinding for 16 hours, five to six days a week. And some days, you know, you're shooting, you're starting at six o'clock in the morning and yeah, you'll start at six o'clock in the morning on Monday and then you'll have night shoots later in the week. So you stagger the schedule and by Friday you're going in at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and work until the sun comes up and you can't shoot nighttime stuff anymore. So, um, you know, the kind of work ethic part is, is pretty similar to a lot of fishing thing and you get a lot of characters involved in that industry that, uh, it's also pretty similar to, to fishing. Who parties harder? Fishermen? Or the film industry? Who goes harder? That's a good question. I would say... There could be some stylistic... I would say the fishing industry generally might go harder. Um, yeah, would, but it'd be... It'd would be, the budget be different? Would the, the, bu the budget is different. Yeah, the budget is probably a little bit different. So the um, substance is probably a little is, different. Yeah, the substance could be different. Well, no, the substance could be... Similar, but I think you just see, uh, you know, you might see, it's not, you know, you can't, you can't blanket statement either. You get people from, you know, you've got everybody from guys, like a film crew is like a little army. It's got like, you know, there's everything from guys that drive trucks and move equipment around to, you know, you've got a set medic and then you've got grips that are uh, moving things around, lighting guys that are, you know, lighting the scenes. And then you've got your like creative people, art director, art people and uh, actors and producers and everything else. So it's like a super wide, um, uh, super wide array of, of people. Um, so it's, it's hard to say, um, you know, fishing, uh, your fishing people are probably by nature a bit more, you know, blue collar in their, uh, party style, but, uh, who's got bigger derelicts? Hmm. 
That's a tough one too. They both they both uh, compare personal stories that I know about still fishing. <laughs> that's right. We More got. Fun. That's right. We own that. Yeah. If I if I if I've been doing the film thing in the seventies or something, maybe it'd compare a little bit more. I think the film industry's clean, cleaned up a little bit more from what it used to be from some of the stories I've heard. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Or bored or, down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Depending on how you want to look at it. Exactly. Too funny. Too um, funny, man. Um, any stories from your career in the film industry that you just feel like you got to tell before I move on? Uh, no, nothing. Um, yeah, nothing that. Um, let's see. You ever go fishing with any of those guys? Any of those guys like to fish? Uh, some of them did. Yeah, I'm trying to. I don't think I took many. Um, no, I had a couple cast guys that wanted to uh, go that, like, for one reason or another. I was like. I was just a few minutes off of getting to take David Hasselhoff for no a, way, uh, for really? A ride. Yeah, yeah. You're just talking about Hasselhoff. Well, our yeah. our last guest would have Maddie yeah. would have gone and died <laughs> I in was, heaven if yeah. she could have gone with the old Hoff. Yes, yeah, somebody oh, was man. calling around. I think I was working on another project, and he was shooting uh, Piranha Three Double D. Um, and that's my favorite Wilmer. movie. Yeah, I knew it would be. <laughs> is that a real movie? That is a real movie. They shot it at a water park in uh, in Wilmington. Hard to believe. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it is really. And uh, it's a gem. And uh, <laughs> sounds like it. Yeah, Hasselhoff is there, and apparently he was awesome, from what I heard. Uh, Gary Busey was in town for that one, and uh, yeah, Hasselhoff is looking for somebody to take him out in a boat. And uh, I can't remember if it was. Fuck, you had a chance to take Dave Hasselhoff on I got a the boat, call. Man. I was like working and I called somebody back and they're like, oh man, we were just looking for somebody. Uh, Hasselhoff was trying to go on a boat with somebody and they had found somebody by the time I got off work, so I missed that one. Uh, oh, fuck. That would have been, been awesome. Yeah, a couple near misses. Uh, the one that I really wanted to do was um, I worked on uh, Eastbound and Down a couple just as a uh, what they call a day player so fill in um just a day or two here and there you know you might go in for a week or something but you're not a full-time member of the crew um it's like a couple saturdays or something that i had off from i think it was the conjuring at the time um the uh, assistant director that i worked for and i went and did some uh, eastbound and down shoots uh second unit shoots and uh what is the second unit shoot so that would be like shooting things you have a primary unit that's usually shooting the main cast and like the um the main scenes from the show and we'd shoot like that the day i'm thinking of we shot some crowd reaction shots of uh we were at a baseball stadium and minor league baseball stadium in myrtle beach and uh so we'd uh we'd shoot some reaction shots of uh you know whatever the crowd was doing um so some of the b-roll type things um you know your montage type shots um that were going into the show and uh that was another it's actually another fun day doing some of that was i got to uh be the eye line. So I'm what the extras are looking at to make sure their eyes are moving in the right direction um, as it shows up on screen. And it looks like somebody does that. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, there's something for all these kind of little tiny things you'd never even think of there. So that was one. uh, So yeah, Danny and all the main cast eastbound cast are shooting in the outfield. They're shooting some, you know, whatever they're doing and we're shooting crowd reaction shots. So I am pretending to be Danny McBride walking across the, uh, walking across the field and these guys are just following me and they're supposed to be yelling stuff at him. And then, you know, I had to be the other pitcher where I'm just, I'm just a person. I'm, you know, I'm just something for them to look at. I'm not on camera. And, uh, yeah, they're, uh, so I had an, most of a main minor league stadium and then we had some inflatable people behind them to make it look like it was 
a more filled crowd um, and save some money. And uh, yeah, so I had a whole stadium flipping me off and uh, telling me to fuck off and yelling all the stuff that, you know, they'd be yelling at, uh, at Danny and the real uh, uh, Kenny Powers, that they'd be yelling at Kenny Powers in the, in the actual show. So yeah, when you see that on screen, they're actually, uh, at least in that one scene, they're, they're yelling at me. Which is basically like one of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah, I remember watching that show shows. and I'm like, I just kept saying, wow, yeah. wow. Because very rarely does a show ever have my same terrible sense of humor. And I'm like, this is amazing. Oh, yeah, they, they did. And those guys, they, yeah, all those people. I, I spent just a tiny bit of time on, uh, on that, but everybody there is awesome. That's one of my favorite shows. Like, I was stuck to just work a few days on that because that's one of the funniest TV series of all time, in my opinion. Uh, that first season of that was like, holy shit, like, all oh, these guys are doing it. And they're all just body, you know, the guys who made that are from North Carolina, um, and they're buddies that, you know, just hung out, went to um, School of the Arts, I believe, in North Carolina, and decided to make their uh, kind of little passion project, and they're still they're still doing it. Um, they're making some, and brought stuff to North Carolina to shoot, which was which is really cool to uh, keep stuff there. They're shooting in uh, Charleston right now with uh, uh, Righteous Gemstones. So another, that's another good one. That is you have to check one. that one out. So yeah, that's a, that's a good one. But um, yeah, that was a tangent off that. What was I, uh, I don't know what that started as, but well, uh, that yeah, anyway, as that was a fun that, one. That was a, that was a tangent of any of the celebrities like to go fishing or anything. Oh yeah. So uh, apparently I had a, I, I didn't know um, Danny McBride, but I had a friend, uh, I knew his sister or something anyway somebody worked on that show um and uh we were doing a lot of flounder gigging i have a little little uh 20 foot skiff at home and we used to uh, do a lot of flounder gigging it's um they've closed down the season for that uh, a lot more now but it used to be something we did all the time when we were working you know crazy hours we did a lot of fishing at night and uh, that was one of our main things was to and that is flounder gigging is when you're spearing flounders uh at night essentially you have anything from a one pronged sort of spear to uh, we're using mostly three to five prong um almost looks like uh, i guess like a trident or something would be uh kind of the closest thing to compare the end of it to but we're just put them on 10 foot wood uh um like closet rods uh, it's the way we build them have lights Spot on the lights. front of them yeah. yeah lights on the front of the boat that um now with leds and stuff you can run them off a lot less we were running um um, lights off batteries that are in under just underneath the surface of the water pulling along with the with the gig poles in like anywhere from a foot of water to two or three feet of water and you're looking to see these those flounder lay right on the bottom they're flat fish that lay right How on deep the bottom water yeah anywhere from a foot to three feet deep um just in these creek uh sometimes on the edge of the beaches um but a lot of times on the edge of the marsh um and we're looking with the lights and kind of tough spot at first once you know what you're looking for we're we're spearing those things and uh is there a size limit i mean how if you're spearing something how do you know it's big enough so we usually tie a piece of wire on the bottom of uh the spear that was uh about 15 usually go a little bit longer and um yeah we try to spear them try to make sure you can get pretty close to them before they'll move sometimes you'll spook one but uh most of the time you could get a pretty good idea once you knew what you were looking for just by the size of the head um how big they were um but uh yeah we usually have a piece of wire tied off so we could look under the water and get an idea from his head to his tail how big um, how do they have to be how big are these flounder uh they'll usually i would say our average size was probably like 17 18 inches uh, at the time i believe they've changed that those laws like every year uh when i was it used to be like 12 or 13 inches most of that during that time we we're doing it a lot i believe it was 15 
inches. So you're looking at, you know, a couple pounds or something like that is what that is. And really that's about as small a size as you want to eat most of the time that you can actually get some solid fillets out of. So, uh, how many would you harvest in a night? Um, I think we, a lot of times, you know, you sometimes, uh, in the summertime, um, for whatever reason, we'd have a little bit slower gigging where we're, uh, it's getting a lot more fishing pressure. Um, then, um, so we get, you know, two or three, four or five sometimes in the fall, we had some good days of getting like. 18 or 20, um, you know, in a night, which was pretty much our limit. I believe it was three to, I think it was maybe five a day at one point. Um, per person. Yeah, per person per day. Um, and my boat was so, you know, lots of times we could take four or five. We'd taken like six people really throws your weight off where it, you know, if you're just going for fun at that point, you know, and maybe gig a few and just take the boys out or whatever. But typically we'd be like four people is kind of perfect on my boat for weight and polling and everything like that. Yeah. But yeah, Danny apparently wanted to go and, uh, we were going to try to take him out, but the timing with his schedule and ours and everything just didn't, didn't quite go. So that's one that I, I wish we could have done. It would have been fun to get him out there and, uh, yeah, gig some flounders, but yeah. So that was another, another near miss. Now, is that a type of fishing where there would be drinking done that, that is a prime type of fishing to do to do drinking when you're out at night you're not even running the boat you're just really pulling along um uh, as pull. joe is telling yep. this story he's trying to pour himself a glass of jack daniels but he left the uh the the cap on you know i was really thinking about noise and trying to be quiet and i was like man i'm trying to really pour this gingerly it's you did a really good going. job of being quiet the thing it's, with the lid on the bottle is that it doesn't pour out at all that's you know but how quiet was it though? it was really it was quiet silent. it was silent the goal I, was accomplished but not the real one I, I mean i would say that goes back to your days from being in the uh, film industry and knowing how important sound quality and everything is yeah like, and we're faking it you know yeah. we're like pantomiming like we tell tell the extras to just right. act like you're doing something don't make any noise Right. Very similar to what you were saying to Maddie in the kitchen a second ago. Yeah. Yeah. Don't make any noise don't, over there. Don't make any noise. Yeah, well. That's a good uh, one. The, uh, you know, you did a great job. It's kind of a shame that I don't have a YouTube channel or something. If people could have seen your artistry, that was really good. I mean, they have to listen to us talk. They, they wouldn't even know what a good example you just did of that whole display of fake yeah, porn. It's a whole... Well, I saw it. Yeah. I, I want you to know that I appreciate it. It's a it. visual medium in here. I hope that it really translates to the ears. I, I, I would like to think they could. Um, okay. So we have worked on headboats. Um, we are worked in the movie career. And we find ourselves crewing in Kona, Hawaii on on the benchmark. That was your first job out here? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The benchmark. That's what brought me out here. So working with, uh, yeah, Chris Donato um, on, uh, yeah, benchmark 37 Merit that he brought over from Samoa. Uh, he had some, some success out there doing... Um, uh, Blue Marlin program there and uh, yeah we came out here Kona was I said originally tried to go to Samoa um, was kind of what I hit him up about and uh, was like you know he was talking about Kona it's like oh yeah well I've always heard about Kona Kona's tropical I can't you know I'd never been to Hawaii before uh, before I moved here with like two suitcases and um, figured yeah never really heard anything too bad about Hawaii so uh, yeah let's just do it and uh, the timing kind of worked out. My lease was up in Atlanta. So you just went. And I was over it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just, just came out and was like, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I'm fishing and I'm in Hawaii and whatever. I got a gig and let's go. So uh, I was kind of getting into doing photography at the time a lot. Um, and uh, so my first year here, uh, it was me, Chris, and Mike Dakel. Um, and he was the uh, he was the first crew. I kind of came on as like second crew, tried to learn the Kona program. Um, 
I'd pulled lures. Before we go any further, can you explain to the people at home, when you say you work on a Kona charter boat, what exactly does that mean? Like, what does a crew member do? What what does the fishing look like out of Kona, Hawaii? Yeah, so we're mainly fishing lures. Um, you know, there's some live bait fishing here still, but... but uh, What are you fishing for? Yeah, fishing for blue marlin uh, primarily. So, And especially our program on the benchmark is really, like, built around trying to catch blue marlin, and especially big blue marlin. So we're, um, we're fishing big lures. Um, so artificial... Um, um, like resin heads and, and um, rubber skirts, vinyl skirts, um, trolling around relatively high speeds, uh, seven to nine knots typically. Um, and yeah, crewmen over here, we're uh, putting all the lures out, we're wiring fish. What does um, that mean? So uh, yeah, wiring, you're, uh, you're basically uh, pulling the fish the last uh, 30 feet or less from um, as the, uh, the swivel gets to the uh, rod tip where we're uh, so basically a hand lining the leader. Yeah, that's right. Um, hand lining that last uh, bit in, taking wraps on your hand. And that's kind of, that's, you know, the other part that got, gets me excited is uh, getting to, uh, to wire those fish. So that was another thing coming to Kona. It was like, you know, out of North Carolina, you, you might get a shot at, if you're on a good boat, you know, 20, 30, you know, plus blue marlin in a year, depending on how much you're actually, you're not targeting them as much because it's a lot more meat fishing. So I hear, you know, you have a chance to do 60, 70, you know, 100 blue marlin in a year, um, if you're lucky, um, sometimes more. I mean, Chuck got 200 a couple of years ago or something, but, uh, you know, if you get a lot more shots and you're blue marlin fishing every day, like, you know, you can, you can blue marlin fish 365 days a year. You may not catch one 365 days a year out of here, but it's at least a year round fishery. Um, what would you say? How often do you catch a blue marlin? Um, I haven't broke down. I could, I haven't actually broke down my individual numbers for trips. I would say, I always tell people it's kind of like a 50-50 shot. I don't know. I think that might be probably generous on some, you know, it may even out with days that you catch. Uh, my best is catching four out of here in a day, but um, I've caught a lot more zero days than I have uh, four days. So, uh, yeah, what, what would you say for your, uh, for your numbers historically? Well, you've got, you've got more time and uh, data than I do. <clears throat> I would say a fair thing to say is that if you looked at the whole – Kona fishery across a year on average, just based on kind of what I've seen, is that realistically you have a chance of catching a billfish, uh, you know, striped marlin, um, spearfish. spearfish, blue, very rarely black or a sail. I would say it probably works out to like one in three days that it actually comes together. And that being said, uh, you have streaks where, you know, you might catch a blue marlin, you know. 20 something days in a row or whatever it might be you know yeah i had some insane run years ago working on multiple boats i think it was like 29 days in a row or something i went where that's pretty and, mental here yeah and i wasn't even working on the same boat it was like a half day here a half day there I, I kept the streak alive and i think it was like uh you know i was kind of whoring around all over the place and yeah i, I think i way to do it yeah i think I, I think i kept it going it was either five or six boats and i just kept getting lucky and we had good fishing and like um what time of year was that? You remember? Uh, it was like spring. It okay. was spring. Fishing was not phenomenal, I remember, but it wasn't bad either. I just kept getting super lucky. Like I remember, like I get, I was like, I get called to do a half day in the afternoon, and we'd catch one, and then I'd do like, uh, you know, like a half day in the next morning and get one, and then we'd get a full day. And 
And I remember like somewhere in the middle, it looked like it was about to end, like right in the middle, it looked like the streak was over and I was clearing the lines coming into the harbor and uh, we caught one at the green buoy for the people that don't know this, like at home, the green buoy is literally like in 40 fathoms of water. And we caught a blue marlin that was probably like 120 or 130 pounds, like after eight hours of trolling, literally in the mouth of the harbor. It was like, we had one lure left and we got super lucky and that kept the streak going alive. I'd have to look back, but I mean, at some point I knew that stat, but it was, it was like 29 days. It, I want to almost say it was a little bit high, but I know it was at least 29 days in a row I caught a blue. That was the most I, I ever did. And then that's a mental run. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And then there wasn't anything really big in that. I remember um, maybe there was like a 505 and like, and you know, we used to whack a lot of the fish back then. Cause I can remember like uh, even just hopping around the, most of those fish, I would say most of those fish were probably harvested. And I remember the biggest fish maybe, was maybe like, it was like 505 and there was like a 490 in there. And then, but most of them were smaller fish. You yeah. Know? Like today, today almost probably, probably almost all of those would have been let go, you know, but uh, at that time. Um, so I, I don't know if somebody could correct me on that, but I feel like you have a legitimate chance of catching a billfish one in three days. I mean, I always told people that. I always said like, if you're serious about coming and catching a billfish, I think you should try and book three days. I think that's, I think that's, yeah, that's the same thing, you know, that we tell people is like, you know, and you're fishing for, that's, that's part of the thing about coming to, to Kono. You're fishing for like one big fish, you know, essentially. And we have a lot of, you know, we do catch a lot of, you know, 100, 150 pounders and stuff here. But, uh, but that's the thing you have a, you, you know, there's a chance there's been a grander call. Yeah. That's part of the reason that I, you know, brought me here, me really wanting to come here is because I want to catch big ones. And, uh, well, there has been a grander caught at some point every month, every calendar month of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So over time, there's been one caught in every calendar month. And the green buoy is another, you know, talking about that. Like we put lures out, we're, we're setting our spread, uh, like where we start fishing just past that green buoy at that green buoy every morning. And it's like, I've also caught a 700 pounder there. Yeah, I caught a 600 pulling lines in, like, that was one of the last bigger ones, it, like, before, oh, what was that, end of, yeah, year before last, um, yeah, one of, on the, on one of the last, like, bigger fish that we caught on the benchmark was, like, yeah, coming in, um, right before I was going back to North Carolina, and we're literally pulling, I think I had one lure back, at, one lure out, and I thought that I was about to yell the charter for cranking on the, you know, cranking the uh, lure up too early because I always just like to leave them in as long as possible and uh, just crank them in slow there. And uh, yeah, look back and there's a like six, six fifty jumping around behind us. And uh, <clears throat> it wasn't the, I think it was the sea genie was right behind us and uh, we go to neutral and you could tell Gene was like, what the hell are they doing right there? And then all of a sudden the 600 pounders closer to his boat than it is to ours. So he's making a U-turn trying to get away, uh, you know, the fish is jumping right off his bow as we're all pulling in at the end of the day. That's awesome. So yeah, catching one right there, that was the other thing that brought, that brought me to Kona, um, you know, and, and really like made me fall in love with fishing here is um, the year round thing and that we're fishing, like I grew up running 50, 60, 70 miles out of Moorhead City um, to try to have a, a shot at a blue marlin. And, um, you know, so you're running I was never fishing on super fast boats growing up. So you're running two and a half, three hours before you're even getting started. And then you fish all day and then run the same thing back. Um, just makes for a long day and you're in rough water, um, which is another Kona thing. So here we're, we're, uh, we're fishing super calm water 95% of the time. Um, 
and we're fishing literally I'll put sunscreen on, put, you know, clip the lures on swivels, clip the leaders on the swivels, maybe have a chance to put some sunscreen on and I'm putting them in the water as soon as we start. So your eight hour fishing day here, you're fishing eight hours. You're not, you know, there's not any, you don't, you don't even have to run out. You're starting right here at Kaibi. Yeah, that is one of the, the things that's really incredible is that the resource is very close. You know, it's people take that for granted here sometimes how how accessible the fishery really is. Uh, let me ask you something. So one thing I notice that we run into all the time in, in, in Hawaii is that there is some misconceptions um, because they look at websites. A, a guest will look at a website and they think they see all these big fish and um, – you know, they, they think like, uh, how do you think it's the best way to give guests a realistic expectations of what they should expect in a charter? I think you should expect to, um, to go out and, and you're going out for the experience. You know, I think you should go out kind of, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the idea that you're going to go have a good time, whether you catch, catch a fish or not. Um, I, kind of recommend that for a charter anywhere you go, go out there and try to, you know, if you're somebody who, who's a fisherman, you want to go out there and try to learn what you can. If it's something that you want to do at home, you want to just see what's going on. Um, you know, there ask questions to the, to the crew and, um, try to see what, um, see what you can pick up and, and you can learn. Um, obviously you're there because you want to catch a fish. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully you will, but there's no, nobody can guarantee that it can be, you know, you can work as hard as you want and all of us want to catch one just as bad as, as any charter guest. Like we all, you know, come here because we want to catch fish. You know, I want to wire fish every day. I want to catch as many as I can. I want to catch the biggest one that I can every day, but it's just not realistic. It doesn't work out that way, um, every day. Um, so, but yeah, come here with high hopes and the main thing is a good, good attitude. Um, but you know, try to, try to enjoy the experience as well. And, and, you know, it's not, it's a results-based business for better or worse, um, you know, at the end of the day. But, um, yeah, even outside of the fishing itself, kind of go there, just, you know, enjoy the scenery, enjoy what's going on around that you're in calm water and you're blue marlin fishing. Like we got, you might see whales, you might see dolphins. You're going to be seeing the coastline the whole time, which is still insane to me that, you know, you're not just seeing water around you all the time. Like you can look and see, oh yeah, our hotel's right over there you know, that's Captain Cook or whatever, you know, there's, uh, so just in, kind of enjoy the experience of where it's at and, uh, what you're doing. And yeah, hopefully you catch like the biggest thing you've ever, you know, biggest fish you've ever seen or caught in your life. But yeah, it's, it's not just about the fishing. I think that's a pretty good lead in. Um, what is the biggest fish you've ever seen? What, what is your best, uh, Kona Hawaii fish story? Um, best fish story. I've probably, I'm sure I've lost, I've lost, I don't know. They're always bigger when you lose them. I think when you, you know, what you see swimming away from you, maybe it grows in your head. I've seen a couple. Well, I don't know if it grows in your head, but it definitely grows in the story. It sure. definitely grows in the story. Yeah. No, I, uh, yeah, I've seen a couple. We've had a couple that got away, um, for sure that, that, that'll haunt you. Um, definitely had, had a few of those. Um, my best story of catching, um, been lucky to have, few uh catch a few nice ones here um, yeah what's your best day 
Best day was catching two. We had kind of a double header. Not kind of. We had a double header of... Uh, How do you kind of have a double header? Yeah, we didn't kind of have a double header. Uh, it's my verbal crutch is the kind of. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we had a uh, double header. Had, this was in July, or sorry, June. Can, to explain to the folks if they don't realize what a double header is, it means basically you have two on at once. Yes, two fish on at one time. Same time going off. Yep, yep. Two, two fish on at one time. So, um, yeah, I'll just, just tell the story is... It was uh, June. Oh man, I've looked at these pictures so much in my. Uh... No, this was a different day. Sorry, thinking about it. You've just caught too many. You've just caught too many big yeah, fish, no, Joe. You can't was, even keep. keep them straight. I always think about the photos. I always go through the photos in my uh, computer so much that I like have all these like dates with uh, a bunch of good photos in them. Uh, like burned into my memory. I think this was uh, July. I don't think 13th? that's. I don't think that's what's burning that's hurt your memory, no, dude. It's probably not. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're out. We have one charter guest, um, uh, super super awesome guy um, that came with us. Um, had never caught a marlin before. Um, he uh, had been out on a few like share charters here before with some other people, and he didn't get a shot at the rod. And I don't, I don't think they maybe they caught some onos or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, he's out, and um, it was like two o'clock. We had the fishing had been pretty good, and um, this was twenty seventeen, I believe. And, uh, yeah, we were out towards Red Hill area, um, just a little bit south of our harbor here in, in Hawaii, um, zone we like to fish a lot. And it was, like I said, no bites. It seemed like, uh, but for some reason it kind of seemed, I kept, I, you know, some of those days you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen. And some days you're like, you just feel like it's going to happen and for whatever reason. And, uh, that was kind of one of those days I, I kept telling him like, look, man, he was, he was super good spirits like i said just a, a good dude to have on the boat was kind of enjoying the, the experience and uh all of a sudden like two o'clock in the afternoon uh we have a fish come up on our long corner so it'd be our uh second longest our second shortest um lure out uh, on the right side of the boat as you're looking back saw the fish come up and eat and um i thought it was like a Maybe a, I thought it was a decent fish. I thought it was like maybe 400 pounds, but I didn't think it was it was that big. And um, so came up and ate, got hooked. Um, I grabbed the rod, get him set up in the chair, and um, and about that time I looked down at the our short corner. Our shortest lure uh, was a uh, XXL poi dog at the time. The first fish ate a black bark blue breakfast, and. Um, Chris says, holy shit, look at that. There's another one. There's another one on the short corner. And I look there and this fish is like all lit up. This one's like no doubt a big one and is completely perpendicular. Comes up and just like one bite out of the water. It wasn't like the most like radical crash bite or anything. It was almost like just all business. The fish came up and just like perpendicular to the lure. He's Opens using his, his hands right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm using my show. hands a lot. Right you can now, probably Joe, hear the wind. Joe's doing a great job right now of showing one hand appearing to nibble yeah. the other <laughs> hand to, dis to display this. Excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, so this fish just comes up and just, like, eats it just like it's his job because I guess it is. But, um, yeah, so it eats this lure and, like, oh, shit. Okay, I know what that was. That was a, that was a, a kind of proper big one. And... Uh, and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a grander or anything, but uh, it was still 
one of the biggest ones, probably in the top couple blue marlin that I've caught. As so far what as happened? Size. You caught both the fish? I mean, you we got, you got up, one angler and yeah, two we got fish one on. Angler. How did that work? Yeah, so we, I, take, I know that the second fish that we hook is bigger than the first. They both jumped together for a second. Um, not side by side, but going the same direction. Both were out of the water at the same time, which was like, holy shit, if I'd had, you know, the camera in my hand, it would have been amazing. But of course, those best moments, usually you don't. And uh, I got my hands full with just three of us on the boat. So I take the rod out of the rod holder, uh, out of the uh, gimbal in the chair that uh, we're fighting these fish out of a fighting chair. So I, I unstrap um, our angler from the harness with the first rod, put the, uh, attach him to the bigger one, and then I clear the other uh, the other three rods. I think Chris probably came down. I just kind of just... Oh, the captain did something? He might have done something there. Huh. Um, I can't really... I think we were all pretty blacked out at that stage of uh, just trying to uh, get things under control. Pure excitement. And, yeah, just, like, full adrenaline, like, I mean, that whole time. Like, that was just, like, full-on... I, I, I honestly have no idea how much time even went by of catching those fish. I know I had a GoPro that may, may, I think I maybe clicked on at some point in that, that died, um, unfortunately, um, during that fight. And, uh, yeah, so we get everything cleared out. I'm cranking on the first fish out of the rod holder. And I think that, you know, the second one's somewhere fishing the, like, 750 to 850 range. I knew it's, like, big. So that that one we're just kind of letting go, and we're trying to just get catch the first one. We know the first one's, like, kind of a, a decent fish, and we want to catch it, but we really just want to fuck that fish off so we can focus on that bigger one. And so I pile on the drag out of the rod holder with uh, the first fish and they eventually, the bigger fish went towards the inshore side, went towards the island. And the smaller one that I have goes towards off the bow of the boat, kind of heads offshore. So they're in two different directions. I had to do probably, I'm cranking on that, that uh, the smaller of the two. And I probably do, I don't know, eight, half a dozen to to a dozen switchbacks back and forth across the back of the boat where I'm shoving the as much as the rod as deep as I can in the water um letting off the drag and trying to keep it from going into the wheels or anything somehow survive all that and get the fish up to the side of the boat um it was still pretty green when he got there because of how much drag we're fighting him on and right out of the rod holder and uh how big was that one uh when it came up it Turned out that it was more like a 600 pound class fish, like maybe a six, 650 or something. It was, it was definitely bigger than I thought it was. Uh, I got the leader on that and uh, got a few wraps deep, get him close. And Chris is just yelling at me to just get, he had a lure that was uh, custom made. It was another, it was a blue breakfast that he caught his grander in Samoa on a blue breakfast. This was one that um, Jack at Black Bart had made for him that had the, the weight of the fish and the name of the boat and everything on it. So he's like, get, just get that lure in your hand, cut it off and we'll chase this other one. Um, at the, at that time, the bigger of the two fish was being super cooperative of, we had it on light drag. It's in the Dacron. So it's stretched out 500 yards or somewhere around 500 yards, but it's just kind of creeping line off. Just, just swimming around probably has no idea. It's still hooked. It's just swimming around out there. So that was, he was being pretty kind to us. Um, and uh, the first fish thought it was doing its best black marlin impression once I got the leader. So it does its uh, first jump while I've got the leader and lands on top of uh, the line, the angler's line in the chair. Luckily, it doesn't get wrapped up. His tail gets in the uh, just kind of the Dacron's under his tail. 
So I'm holding him there. Chris runs down and lets the drag off a little bit more, and I'm able to pull the fish out. You know, he kind of guides the line. So the fish you've got on the leader has jumped on the on the the on, line on, that 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 the angler has with the even bigger fish on. Yeah, he's on top of that. If it had been tight, there's like I still kind of don't understand how it didn't bust it off, but it should, it was in the dacron, which probably helped us. And it was also like light drag, and Chris was able to jump down, push it a little bit lighter. We're definitely not in IGFA at this point with all the uh, line touching and rod holder and whatnot. But yeah, he, he drops that off, and um, and uh, yeah, we're able to pull that fish out of the other line, so we're clear. As soon as we get that one clear, he does one another jump right beside the boat. I've still got the wraps. And then spins around and does another jump this time underneath the line that, uh, so he didn't land on top of it. He went underneath and I'm just kind of buried in the corner, uh, in the opposite corner. Um, the fish is jumping away from me. So you're just wrapped up on this fish. Yeah. It's going got, nuts. And I'm just trying to hold on and I'm like really just trying to either bust it off or, you know, I'm really, I've got the, my cutters in my pocket and I'm just really trying to, uh, get the lure in my hand, cut it off and chase after the other fish is the main thing on my mind. And this thing's like probably the most radical fish that I had on the leader. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that one does its last jump and on that jump, uh, we cracked a, uh, it cracked the hook in half on, uh, <laughs> right at the, at where the hook bends, uh, that hook actually broke there, which was honestly the best scenario there. Cause we get the lure back and, uh, the fish is a super healthy release <laughs> and, uh, then we're able to focus on the, the one we know is bigger. Um, so then we, we chase that fish down. We got that one away. Um, we're able to focus on the big one, start backing down on that fish. And uh, it gets down deep. It doesn't do, it does a, you know, a couple jumps. Did it jumps kind of early in the fight. Um, I can't remember anyone really later. It, it kind of did some more dig down deep thing later. Um, we then we could put some drag on it and fight it. Um, and we, uh, we got that one up to the side of the boat. Um, not too long after, um, that one was hard fighting fish, but didn't do anything nearly as radical as the first fish. So get that one up to the leader and, uh, kind of talked about if we should gaff it just, you know, it was one of the, I probably at the time it was one of the biggest ones that we caught on the benchmark in Kona. And, uh, you know, you always want to know, I was like, oh, what's that fish weigh? What's that fish weigh? And uh, we, Chris, I passed my camera up to Chris um, before I got the leader. He got some killer shots on the leader. Um, I think one, one, one ended up being a uh, cover on, of blue water um, with that fish. And I guess it was probably, you know, I'd call it 750 or so. Um, I, I, you know, in your head, you're thinking maybe it's bigger than that. I don't know. We didn't weigh it. So uh, we'll say 750 or something. But, um, it was just like beautiful, super lit up. Like the pictures of that one beside the boat were insane. And, you know, we were just stoked to have, have caught that fish and, um, you know, with all the chaos going on and, you know, that the guy with us was, uh, was, was super awesome. Um, he, he saw how stoked we were and he's like all the chaos, like what the hell is going on? You know, and he's like, man, does this, does that happen a lot? At the end of it, once we let the fish go, we're all high-fiving in the cockpit and probably crack a beer around that time. He's like, man, does that happen a lot? I'm like, no, man, that's, that's not. You just saw something that, like, most people who do this a long time don't see with the two big ones at one time, you know. Calm water is just a, just an awesome day. And, uh, yeah, he couldn't have been cooler. Um, and that was another thing that kind of later on we stayed in contact with him. And, and he, um, 
he got in touch with us later. He ended up um, getting diagnosed with cancer later that year. And he reached out to us and, you know, said that, you know, the photos from that day and kind of memory of that day really like kind of helped him um, in his like recovery. Um, last that I talked to, uh, to him, he was doing well and, um, you know, awesome. It was one of those guys that, you know, you're glad that he was one that got to, to have that experience with you, um, you know, because he really appreciated it and got it and was stoked on it. And, you know, makes you kind of think about stuff that uh, that we do in this business is, you know, there's some, some memories and stuff that really do help people, um, as you go. And, and I mean, that was one of my favorite, I mean, it might be one of the better fishing days I'll ever have. And that is an awesome story with an incredible run. We're going to take a little break here, Joe. Um, okay, Joe, welcome back. That was a great charter. Now, why don't you tell us about the worst charter you've ever had in Kona? Oh man. Uh, had some had some weird ones. Um, had some guests that um, you know just weren't. Um, I had one guy. I don't know. What, I, we've had some some weird people and stuff, but I can I can handle weird people. They end up being like you know good stories and stuff. I had one dude who didn't want to. It's a long day, and you know, you're just like super nice to people trying to like, you know see whatever they're into and uh, make sure they have a, have a good time. I had one dude who like did what would not speak to me at the end of the day. Um, I think, I don't know if it was a 12 hour day. We do a 12 hour trip and I can't remember if it was a 12 or just a regular eight. His girlfriend was like nice enough, but uh, yeah, he was like going out of his way not to speak at the end of the day. Um, he was so going out of his way to not talk? To not speak. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I was saying, and then I made it a game to try to say things that he had to almost had to respond to, you know, and so he was Give really, me an example of that. So it was like, uh, yeah, man, you know, how's it going? Yeah, you know, it's slow. I'm kind of telling him, trying to tell him about the fishing and trying to like talk about what's going on with the currents or whatever. But then I just ask him questions about, you know, whatever he, we'd already been through like what he did for a living and all that when he was still in a good mood, but you know. Wait, so why was this gentleman in a bad mood? We, uh, just because we hadn't, hadn't gotten any bites. Oh, okay. Um, so maybe, I think we missed a spearfish. Um, we had one, we had a, I, that might have been, let's see, this particular day, I don't believe we didn't have a bite. I think we missed like three spearfish bites. I think, you know, we had chuckers, uh, spearfish, shortbill spearfish that, uh, yeah, would hit, the, hit our stinger, our farthest line out. And, uh, yeah, it was just one of those days they just were not going to stick. I'm like doing every trick that I know how to do, pulling it down and cranking it up and pulling the line with my hand and trying to, you know, let it go, um, use my hand as a kind of like an Albert Rigger clip sort of deal, uh, feed it to him, whatever you could do. And it just like was not, was not working. And they were, they were spearfish. They weren't like, you know, giant blue Marlin we were missing. It was just one of those days, you know, stuff wasn't working. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, so wait, was, what are you saying? This gentleman just had like unrealistic expectations or he just wasn't that into Marlin he fishing? He might've had unrealistic expectations. I, he wouldn't really tell me at the end. <laughs> that was part of the thing. You know, there's a real lack of communication. And uh, so, yeah, then you kind of just like try to make, try to have fun with it as much as you can and just like, all right, man, just, you know, try to, try to, try to ease them up. But uh, sometimes it doesn't work. Do you think it's just because you're long hair? Do you think maybe he thought you were He could have been, he could have been discriminated against me because of my long hair. That could be what it was. You know, I find that happens a lot. You think perhaps he was just thinking maybe you were more interested in the hippie hay than catching him a fish? Maybe that's what he thought. Maybe that's what, but you know, we're a drug-free vessel. Uh, hey, I wasn't asking that. I was just asking about why this gentleman didn't enjoy your company. I wonder too. I I could have asked him and he wouldn't have told me. 
That would make it hard. But his girlfriend still seemed to be having a good time. His girlfriend seemed to be having a good time. Maybe that's why he wasn't happy. I don't know. I have also personally experienced that. Sometimes if their girlfriend or even their daughter is having too good of a time on a charter and they're not, that doesn't seem to go over well with the guy paying the bill. Sometimes I'm, too good a time, just, you know, it's not good. It's, did you fuck this man's wife? I didn't. Are you sure? I didn't. Not during the trip, but afterwards. I didn't. <laughs> you had to think about that for a second. Just checking. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> not, that, not that you know of. That, that look, you look suspicious on that. No, no, I didn't. Are you I, sure? I didn't. I didn't this time. Not this time? <laughs> You've been through this before? Nope. That's it? That's Next your, that, question. That, that, was your, <laughs> that was your worst charter guest? It was just a guy who wouldn't talk to you? Because sometimes it's a dream when you have a charter no, guest who won't talk to you. I don't know if you. that's the worst one. I'm trying to think. I mean, sometimes you hope the charters won't talk to you. And yeah. I love going charter fishing, but I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think sometimes people pay a lot of money for a charter, and then they feel like they're obligated to talk to you because they have X amount of money invested into the trip. So they will literally just keep talking to you about stuff, and you're like, that no. can't be a real question, but I'm going to answer it anyways because he's paying the bill here. Yeah, no, it's definitely not my worst. That one pissed me off a lot just because it was just like, you know, whatever. For some, that one uh, was one of the first. No, you want to know my worst charter? <laughs> yeah, I do. That's why I literally right, just asked okay. you that question. Well, yeah, well, I'm just buying time till I actually think of one of them. But uh, you were there. It was, uh, on you know, the, it was, you, on, know, you know how often I hear that I'm involved in the worst day. This, this is starting, that to be, was the real, this is starting to be a trend. No, that was just it. Oh. You were there. <laughs> and no, no, it was, uh, uh not the first time. I, I, and you not know, the first way that, not the first time it's gone that way on this podcast. <laughs> like, no, it was, um, probably, um, was it, was it the, was it the worst? I don't know. It was, you know, all these, all the worst ones end up being, uh, being really good stories at some point, and True. Uh, this one was uh, in Australia on the reef. Oh yeah, if we're gonna go there, I know what this story is. This has got to be Sandy. That's that's Sandy. Yeah, that's, I don't have to worry about Sandy listening to this podcast. I don't think he's, so. He's uh, doing things far too important. He's doing. He's somewhere saving the world right now no. uh, from all the terrors and horrors in the world. Please he's tell seen so much bloodshed. Please tell this story because I actually have to say I don't want to say this is the worst charter I've ever had. Yeah, it was probably the worst. It may have been the worst charter I ever it had. Was, it was it's not even like it was just painful. That's that's so the thing. It was a painful trip. So what? Why don't you explain this? Yeah, one? we can we can tag team this. But it was uh, yeah. So we're we're in Australia. We're fishing the Great Barrier Reef. It's the it's the first time, only time I've been out um, out there. Kenton uh, brought me out to the reef to uh, be his second crew with uh, the great Captain Brad Craft. Cheers, uh, Crafty, right cheers there. Cheers to Crafty, Legend. my fucking dude. Um, so we're, what was that midway through the season or so? It was probably during some of the, it was, well, I remember this, the fishing was very good Yeah, and we weren't getting to partake in it. And that's the part, that's what makes it probably one of the worst charters. Like there, you know, it was, yeah. When we're sitting on the, how do I work this? Yeah. So yeah, when we're not black Marlin fishing, you're on the great barrier reef. And what was that fucking November? Probably that we, uh, it was either late October or beginning of November. It was yeah. like super prime time. I think it was like right at the beginning of November. I think we had that run at first, um, on the Kiama and all that with, I think that was late October. Anyway, we, it was prime time, black Marlin. And, uh, yeah, we get, uh, this guy, one guy who was, uh, who was, 
Real cool kind of return guest of uh, Crafties. Great guy. What was his name? He's a good guy because he's important because we run into him. Yeah. But we run into him after. Yeah. He's he's a good dude. Like he was. What was his name? Clint or Cliff or. Uh, I'll think of it in a second. I'm terrible with names. Uh, Oh, he was great though. He so he was like a hardworking contractor guy that somehow invited these other two people out that he had met. um, Yeah. Sandy and Amber. Amber. And uh, so Sandy, oh, how can we paint this picture? Sandy is like... He looks like the doctor from Jurassic Park. Yes, yes. Uh, he's a small, round man. A small in height, um, but round. And uh, he, um, yeah, he had been, he told us stories of being... His career changed a hundred times on the trip. Yeah, he was something like, it sounded like Peace Corps type thing or... Uh, I don't. I mean, when he, I don't, when he wasn't negotiating like peace in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, he had been everywhere. There had ever been a war. I think he told us stories about you know wars that. I, I think he was the head of, of a he was the head of a hospital too. Remember this? Yeah. But he, he was the head of a hospital supposedly. But he couldn't but get he, his surgery. But he or couldn't something. get his shoulder surgery. <laughs> and and also, so he shows up to the boat to go giant black marlin fishing on the Great Barrier Reef with a uh, with a his arm in a uh, in a sling. He had a broken wing. Broken wing, mate. You had a broken wing, mate. And uh, so, yeah, Sandy has, I don't know, maybe he's been on a boat before, but it's probably full of, you know, it was some, in some war-torn country from most of his stories. Yeah, that should be important, that every one of, he had supposedly done everything on Earth, but every story ending completely depressing. Every story ended with him like, and then my wife died. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then... Oh, I've seen so much death in the world. It was just yeah, like every like he was just the ultimate downer of oh man, it's a beautiful day, and, you know. And he was, and he did. He loved it out there. He was like, oh, this is so beautiful. I slept so good out here. I've seen so much horror in the world. And then he'd go into all the terrible things that he'd yeah. seen. And I know he'd be like all the this war, is the most beautiful dead bodies, sleep. and whatever. And you're just like, oh, come on, man. Do you remember that? He's like, that's the most beautiful sunset I've seen. It reminds me of burning bodies on the Sahara. Yeah. He was totally like trying to be serious, yeah. or he was being serious. He was, being he was like serious. a pathological liar or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, after we saw, oh, what was it? I can't remember the other guy's name right off the top of my head. But he uh, see him later, and he's just like, yeah, you know that Sandy guy was full of shit. What you don't say? Yeah, I run, I run into him. Were you with me, or is it just me no, and Crafty? Yeah. So me and Crafty, and maybe even been the next year, right? The next season, no, we ran into him later that year. I don't know if that's when we he, run it. We ran it. That is when we ran into him at the mall. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, how's your old buddy Sandy That's doing? Right. And the guy's mind. like, uh, he goes, you're not going to believe this. I'm like, what's that? He goes, I think that guy was a bit of a storyteller. <laughs> I'm like, no way. He didn't really do all that stuff. But it's like literally all we talked about after <laughs> that was uh, his stories. And then uh, did you brought- re- do you remember the Marlin bite is on? And he wanted to go bottom fishing with a handline, but he had a broken arm. So he's he's like, I think I'm a handliner. Yeah. And he's handlining with one hand. He wanted a handline. He was obsessed with with going handlining for some reason yeah, because the other guy liked to use a handline, and uh, so he wanted to. And you know, it's like the saying, like a one legged man in an ass kicking contest. This is a one armed man in a handlining contest. It was awful, dude. Remember, he kept asking you over and over again about the fish. Tell this part of the story. That was great. Yeah. So we're we're on the on the inside, and the bite's going off. It's like middle of the day, and uh, these guys just want to. 
Uh, Sandy and Amber want to stay in. They're having a better time. Oh, and um, Amber is like this girl he's trying to impress. She's at least, what, 30 years younger than him? Has to be. I know. I, I, she, was, she may have been 30 or something like that, but yeah, yeah younger. Yeah, like, he's definitely trying to impress this girl. Yeah, and I have no idea where she came from. Out or of what, her, group. Like, what her deal is, yeah. It's a really random collection of people we have right now. and uh, She's the most beautiful woman in the world. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> and then I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah she's great. Uh-huh. Like, awesome. Let's just be – just to, to the folks at home, to, no, I'm not being judgy, but she wasn't exactly kind on the eyes. And he would just look at her and, I mean, I I, I can appreciate his love affair for uh, different taste. Whatever but he, you're into. But, 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 but then he would, like, come over and he'd ask me questions like, is she not the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? And I'm thinking to myself – don't put me in this scenario. I don't lie. Like, don't ask me questions you don't want the answer to. Because don't you back me in this corner. Yeah, don't back me in that corner because I'm going to tell you here real, yeah. real shortly that she's not exactly what you would call attractive. Yeah, so he's – so we're fishing on the inside and bottom fishing. The marmot, we're really not the marmot are snapping. We're getting stories. The, the, everything is wrong yeah. for bottom fishing. The captain and crew are pissed. That we're inside uh, doing this, and and it doesn't last too much longer after this. That we just say, look, we're going out there, and yeah, but you know. no, but remember the fish story. This is what I want to say. Yeah, so, so the fish, so yeah, so uh, so we're we're <laughs> the current is raging. It's like you can't get a bait to the bottom unless you put like four pounds of lead down, and and, and we're all over it. We're kind of you know barely assisting in this uh, lost bottom fish, fishing venture, trying to uh, stop it so we can go get off off the edge. And um, Sandy's got his hand line down, and he uh, he catches he catches a remora, actually a pretty big remora. Like it was, I don't know, it was a couple feet, two three feet long or something like that. It was a big big remora, and um, so we catch it, take it off, and every time we caught a fish, every single time he caught any sort of bottom fish. Oh, that's just beautiful. Oh, I just love this. What what kind of fish is that? What kind of fish is that, Joe? What kind of fish is that one? It's like, oh man, this is a remora, you know. First time I come, oh yeah, you know they uh, are they good to eat. <laughs> oh yeah, are they good to eat? <laughs> and uh, and after you tell him whether it's good to eat, you know, he didn't mind uh, uh, taking a fish to to eat, and then he'd tell you about all the killing he saw, and he didn't think he'd be able to be a part of any killing, but he thought it was okay with eating a fish or something. Yeah, so that was another yeah. bright spot. No, no, after, yeah. After all the death. Yeah. After all the death that he'd seen and all the war, so we catch this remora. And we throw it, throw it, uh, throw it back, let it go, and then he puts it right back out and catches the same remora, <laughs> like the same one. And then we, this process happens, and when that when that remora comes in, which again is literally the exact same, <laughs> the exact not same one rem- like the same, not size. like not like similar, like the same like fucking remora got bites the hook again, a hole in his mouth, and uh, then it's. Oh, what, Joe, what kind of fish is that? Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, can we eat it? No, this is a remora. It's, it's the same remora. And so we throw it back. This happens. We must have caught that thing, what, like five times Five, or six times yeah. at least. We got the same yeah. fucking same fish. Fucking he kept catching the same fish and kept eating the hook. And every time, what kind of fish is that, Joe? What kind of fish is that? It's the same remora, you know? <laughs> and uh, then he puts it in immediately after, gets a bite. I'm like... How many times are you going to do this? I'm going to jump overboard and just start swimming, you know? And uh, the next fish is a cobia. <laughs> no, but yeah, it was the best he asked. And he's like, is it the same fish? And I remember you being like, it's the, first it's, time. It's the same fucking fish. And you look over and you're like, 
Ah, shit. That's, yeah. a, look, that's a cobia. It's the first time he's like, oh, is that another remora? It's like, man, actually, this is a cobia. This is actually a different fish. Which got him excited again, which was the most disappointing thing. That was the worst that, part. Because... That he wanted to keep going because he caught a different species of fish that was actually good to eat. Do you remember we finally got out? Crafty's like, all right, I've had enough of this. We went out yeah. trolling uh, maybe 30 minutes max, and we caught... We, I mean, we're 30 minutes into it, and we caught we caught a marlin. And then as soon as we catch the marlin, he goes, well, what's next? What are we going to do now? Yeah, what are, we, what are we going to do now? I know that was an amber question right after. What? So what do we do? We caught a marlin. What do we do now? We go catch another one. Go catch a bigger one. They're like, oh, yes. oh, that's all? I'm like, yeah. And you I think literally that- caught a marlin <laughs> within 30 minutes of marlin fishing. And they're like, oh, well, can we go back? What about hand lining? I'm, like, I'm like, oh, my God. It's like, please, God, let this be over. Yeah, that was part of it. The guy's name was Cole. Cole. The really good guy. His name was Cole. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, Cole. That's his name. I'll never forget, though, looking at Cole's face when he's like, you would never believe that guy was a... He's a bit of a fibber. That's what he said. He goes, goes, I think he was a bit of a fibber. I think he was making up some of those stories. I'm like, huh? "Hmm, Weird. Huh. He wasn't the head of a hospital. Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't been a major peacekeeper in every war in every country. So much death. So much death. Well, speaking of so much death, Joe. Yes. This, I, I wish I actually had, like, that was actually would have been, like, a really good lead-in. I, w- <laughs> I was thinking, like, wow. I wish. But speaking of so much death, you're not just a, uh, a, a charter fisherman. You're also a commercial fisherman, and you guys just had a really strong commercial season in North Carolina. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was super fun. Yeah, I do, uh, you know, very, uh, yeah, a little bit of commercial fishing. Uh, definitely enjoy. I hadn't done the uh, Atlantic bluefin thing in, in a long time. Uh, I was fishing, um, came back this winter to North Carolina, and one of the things I was most excited about was to... Uh, to go fishing for the, the giant bluefin tuna that show up um, anywhere from like November to uh, March or April um, and uh, on the east coast of uh, so we're fishing um, started off we did a little bit out of Moorhead City most of the fishing I did was out of Oregon Inlet later um, early season bite um, is kind of ends up being Moorhead Wilmington a little bit of Oregon Inlet in some shallow water um, and then later the vast majority of the fishing that I did and the success that we had was was out of uh, fishing out of Wanchies and fishing out of Oregon Inlet in the uh, kind of central coast of outer banks of North Carolina um, so yes fishing on a boat called the Yellowfin um, with uh, some of my good friends over there uh, Jeff Garner um, and uh, and, and Nathan, um, so Nathan Stafford, uh, two guys that I've been fishing with from, uh, for years now. Um, and, uh, like 20 years or something, I think I've been fishing on the yellowfin, um, since I was a kid with those guys. So anyway, um, uh, they, uh, they need another crew and, uh, I went up there, we kind of went and stayed in the outer banks up in Nags Head for, uh, most of February is kind of when the prime bite is brought the uh, yellowfin up from Moorhead to uh, Wanchies and it was a little slow at first. We caught, um, I think on the trip up there, uh, we maybe missed one. We had to deal with a lot of sharks early in the season. Um, and then uh, caught one, I think the next trip trolling. This is all, this is dealing with sharks. So it was trunking to start that, the season? Yeah, that was nighttime. So we're doing it um, kind of daytime is, is pretty much all. Um, the southern coast, it's more live baiting. Uh, we did a little bit of live baiting out of Oregon Inlet. What are you live baiting with? Is it similar to We're Kona using Hawaii? bluefish then. Oh, bluefish. Um, yeah, so we're using bluefish at that time. Is this out you of a kite? You can use them in Hayden. 
No, so we're uh, we're using. You can use balloons. Um, we were kind of fishing them a little bit deeper, and we were mainly most of our live baiting was at night, and that ended up turning to dead baiting, like Boston mackerel type fishing, um, as it got later in the season, just because the bait was a little bit harder to come by. Up so, in do you have to catch the bluefish during the day, or you're catching them at night as well? We were catching the we were catching the bluefish during the day um, then, but we and we did just a little bit of that. Um, our main thing, organellant, it was a little bit tougher to get that bait because we're fishing. Um, Moorhead City, we're typically fishing within 20 miles and lots of times within 10 miles. Um, but organically, we're going 30, 40 miles, you know, um, and with the going a little bit south. So we're, you know, we're covering a little bit more ground, um, fishing kind of the edge of the Gulf Stream. So instead of like 10 to 20 fathoms that we're fishing in Moorhead, we're, we're fishing like, you know, 50 to 500 fathoms or, you know, the edge of the Gulf Stream or in the Gulf, you know, kind of the edge of that Gulf Stream um, up in Oregon Island. So the deep water bluefins are, I think, a different animal. Fight a little, fight a little harder. There's no, uh, you know, Michelle, you know, you can be within 100 feet of them if it's 100 feet deep um, and get on top of the fish. And these things, there's, uh, they can go down as far as they want and they take advantage of it. And I think a little bit warmer water helps them out. Um, you know, I hadn't done it in North Carolina in a long time. I'm certainly not the most, like, knowledgeable person in the world with it. I was definitely doing some learning uh, along the way with that fishery, but... It was awesome, man. The last, um, especially the last week, um, week, 10 days of the season, we caught fish the last, I think, four, four days in a row, five days in a row of the season. Um, every day, you could catch one a day, um, one giant, over, which is over 73 inches. Um, and we caught them from, we caught, I think, two shorts we let go um, during the season. Um, but the vast majority of the fish are 300 pounds plus. Um, and uh yeah some awesome bites like we were we caught one or two at night um on boston mackerels and the rest were ballyhoo like islander type rigs islander sea witch with horse ballyhoo and i mean if we had to wait two hours for a bite it was like what's going on something's up you know and then you get pile big on. piles of fish some big piles of fish yeah we were marking you know you'd, you'd go over and mark 10 or 15 fish the the very end which was, was there a lot of bait how did you know where these fish were or would you see them busting yeah, it was mainly temperature breaks we're fishing temperature breaks and then a uh, little bit of there wasn't really too much structure we're fishing on it's mainly um temp, uh, temperature breaks there and we were getting breaks anywhere from birds a bit of birds, um, nothing like really crazy, um, but you'd see there were some birds around, so you definitely use the birds to your advantage. Um, but it wasn't anything like you know insane with the birds, but there was some birds around. Um, but you'd see the bait on top; they were balling up schools of pogies and uh, which are menhaden or um, different names around the the east coast. But yeah, menhaden, uh, some bunker ribbon, yeah, bunker, uh, shad, whatever. But uh, yeah, ribbon fish, bluefish that but we're catching them on ballyhoos and i mean the bite was there was a couple days where like literally as soon as we get them out you know we we catch a fish like five minutes after we start or we'd hook one and uh you know hookup ratio is pretty good too but um but yeah we're mostly singles most we had um we had one triple that the i think early we had one triple another double uh we only caught singles at a time uh, we'd have like one of those fish. We never, um, never had all three going, never had all three going where we, we actually caught them, but we did have like three rods go off. One comes off the bite. One comes off like a minute later. We had one chafe off, I think against they crossed and, uh, and they chafed each other off. I think there were two, 
two bigger fish um, a little bit later. But yeah, it was like the bite was just mental. Like it was, I mean, you you went out there just knowing you're going to catch a fish. It wasn't wasn't a matter of man, I hope we we go get one. It's like all right, let's go. We're going to go. We're going to get one, and it's just a matter of time. Like I said, if you're trolling for hell for more than thirty minutes, we'd be like, oh, what's what's up? And then it would just turn on and it was going. Um, and a lot of guys, you know, we were out there in the same zone. Um, How many boats are out there? Um, you'd see, it definitely wasn't, I remember, it wasn't terrible. I would say there, there could be, you know, 40 boats or so around you, um, sometimes. Um, and there could have been more than that kind of in a wider area. You know, there's a, there's a pretty wide area where guys are fishing, but there was, you know, concentrated spots where people were getting bites over the course of that, that week or a couple weeks where it was really, really biting out there. Um, so there was clusters of boats, but you weren't, you know, outrigger to outrigger with guys or anything like that. And, and it is a troll, again, troll fishery during the day. So you can make a little bit more, more space. Um, but I, I really don't remember when I was like 18, 19, 20, I'd fish, uh, with the same guys and we were trolling out of Moorhead. And I remember counting one time 75 boats off our stern. Um, that would, that would have been in the early two thousands. Um, and whether it was, COVID keeping people from traveling, some of the Northern guys, or, you know, it was rough. The conditions were definitely cold and rough the vast majority of the time, keeping some of the trailer boats and center consoles and stuff away. Um, I think that probably worked in our favor as far as fishing pressure. Um, so yeah, I mean, there could have been 40, um, definitely more than that out there overall, but you know, you may have 10 to 20 boats in a given spot. Why do you think there's less boats? Is it because of the market? Is it what what has changed? Like, I think it's a combination of things. I think the market is definitely you're not getting like the the realistic thing is you're not getting the like wicked tuna prices, the prices that they're showing on the show. I'm, somebody might be, but the guys that I know. Are you saying reality television isn't real? Who who would have ever guessed such a thing? I know. I've been you know. What's not real we're about all, Wicked Tuna? We're all huge fans of the Kardashians and stuff, and they might be making some of that stuff up. What do you mean? I don't know. It's reality, don't, Joe. Don't make me cry. No, no, it's, no, no but, that's a good question, yeah. though. What, what, is, what are the differences between Wicked Tuna and the reality? Yeah, so I think the, I think the tuna price is one thing. And I think, I think Wicked Tuna, you know, not just like hating on that show, because a lot of our buddies are, uh, all the guys around us um, in Wanchies were, not all, but a lot of the guys around us were on the show, and it's a good thing to kind of showcase uh, that fishery in that area. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, they, they create some of the drama and stuff there, and, and the competition's obviously there kind of naturally. Like, we all want to want to catch fish, but we're, we're in some ways working together, and in some ways it is competitive. But the, I think the pricing is kind of the biggest thing, like, how inaccurate are the prices? Uh, so, for an example, one of the fish first fish, um, I haven't even seen all the prices uh, yet that we got for, for the total of fish. But we, you know, one of the early fish that we got was like, uh, you know, under four. It was like three, I believe 330 or something a pound is what, what we get for it. And you just don't see that on the show. And that, it happens. You know, I mean, it's not like that fish was, that fish was a low one, but it was, um, it was not a super super outlier for what was happening during that time uh there was other guys getting the same thing and i would say the average is probably four to ten dollars a pound would be like a you know maybe a six dollar average or something like that um is probably realistic um again i didn't see all the you know every price that came through and there was some really cherry like beautiful fish in the fish house but 
it's about the the quality of the fish and that market in it on it in itself just isn't what it used to be i think in the 90s and 2000s there you were seeing some of those like crazy prices like that really was what was happening and i you know i don't know how they do it on the show and and say those prices but we're selling to literally the exact same fish house like dropping off at the at the same spot and you know i I don't think and that show hasn't aired yet i don't know what what they're going to uh show there but I, i just don't think those prices are you know people get an idea you even see it out here in kona uh you know that people watch that show and we catch a yellowfin you know you know as a commercial uh you know full-time commercial fisherman that people see you with a, a box full of tuna and they're like oh man what is that you're getting twenty dollars a pound thirty dollars a pound for all those fish and it's like it's just not the case you know yeah, I know. Like, I know a lot about. I know a lot about the market, but I, I don't really say a whole lot. But I, you know, <clears throat> one thing that has troubled me with fishing reality shows, and this is just kind of a side note. Like, uh, um, I often feel they don't tell the best story, and what I mean by that is the reality of the difficulties of the marketplace uh, would be probably a huge part of the story to tell. But they always skip over that. And I happen to know from Wicked Tuna's perspective because I was involved with some stuff many, many, many years ago. And so I don't want this to sound like sour grapes or anything um, because I'm not. I give all those guys credit. I would do – I myself, I'll be the first to admit, I'd be on a show like that. No question. Anything to benefit my fishery. If I felt like it could benefit, you know, do better for my family. So I understand that. I understand where they're coming from. I I have – Absolutely, um, no hate on those guys at all. Totally, um, same here. Yeah, I'm definitely not hating on that show. I'd be down, you know, I think it's a cool thing to, to showcase that fishery. And, you know, but, I, I just don't, you know, I don't see but, the prices there. But other than that, you know, I think uh, it's, it's kind of, a, it can be a cool thing. But yeah. Well, uh, you're from the film industry too. So, like, I think sometimes where people get lost and fishermen get upset that see it and they see the wild inaccuracies is that you have to keep in mind. It's not the fisherman necessarily that doesn't want to tell the story. It's some producer that has final cut. You know, they're the ones that ultimately are telling the tale. And they want drama and they want this other stuff to sell a story because, you know, Joe Blow in Idaho doesn't know anything about the fishery. Like, you're never going to make the people who really know all the technical aspects of it happy. But, like, the, the person that they're just trying, the average television watcher that they're just trying to entertain. They don't really care necessarily about the, the, the details. And the guy, the guy who's actually got final cut, the guy who finally gets to tell the story, his opinion of what they're showcasing would be very different than, um, very different than say the actual fisherman. Like I've been down the road where, you know, I was involved in this show and it didn't ultimately come together, but it got down to the, the point where we had contracts and everything. And some of the first questions they asked me were like ridiculous. They were like, who fights with who? I'm like, I don't really fight with anybody. They're like, okay, like, who's this? Who's that? Like, who's this guy brawl with? And I'm like, I'm like, you guys are missing it. You're missing the whole point. There's so much more of a story here, but I do know from the very early days about Wicked Tuna. And so, um, one thing a lot of people don't know is that early on, okay, the National Geographic actual society hated the show because it showed guys targeting fish that at the time were considered critically endangered or in trouble. Now, the, the U.S. stock has come way back, and the U.S. fishery is without a doubt doing it best. Yeah. But the, the society itself hated the show. However, from the network's standpoint, 
it was the most successful show they ever had. So they were in that battle where it's like, okay, well, the society hates it, but it's the most profitable show the network's ever had. And so in order to justify the fact that these people were folk that were catching these endangered fish, they greatly inflated the prices. So that way it'd be like, oh, okay, well, these guys are making that much money and they're feeding their family. And so it's not, it, it's not so bad. There's a justification there. Um, I know like this summer, if you could even sell a bluefin after COVID because they weren't even buying fish from everybody. I know that it got below sub $2. I know a lot of guys that were catching fish and just letting them go because, you know, they're under two bucks. Like, yeah, you know, that story, in my opinion, is a better story. You know, like I, I would think that consumers and stuff would love to know that, that like, you know, there's times like $5 domestically to the local, like to the domestic sushi market is better. And there's just this huge, huge, huge misunderstanding because they see these uh, stories of uh, tunas that go for one million, and then they had that one one for three million, and they don't even understand that's not a U.S. based fish. That's from a very certain place in Japan. It has to do with the auction. Like it's like the, the first put straight on the auction. Like after you know there after well, it's caught, it's not shipped across. Yeah, and it, and it's not and it's bought for advertising. The guy that buys that he owns like twenty two sushi restaurants in Tokyo alone, and he sells that fish at a major loss. But he views it as advertising for his his businesses. That like, he buys the most expensive tuna. That he buys that's the correct. best tuna. And like, if you want the best tuna because this guy pays three million dollars for it, yeah, yeah. you must be getting the best. You you will buy that fish at a, he's selling it at an incredible loss in the physical fish, but it's the advertising. Everybody perpetuates that story in the media and it just keeps going and going and it's just – it pays for itself in advertising so many folds over. And that's what a lot of people don't always realize about these shows and about the seafood industry is like you're kind of being told what some marketer or some producer wants you to know and not the reality. So I don't have anything against those guys. I give them full credit for doing the best they can for the family and I and having been down that road – and not actually having the deal executed myself, I actually can feel for those guys because I can see where you would sign on for something and then the show would make you look like something you're not. So if you guys are listening to this, I don't want you to think that I'm hating on you. I would do whatever's best for my family as well. And I definitely understand uh, from having been very close down that road that a lot of times, um, you know, they just, they show the public what, what they think is the best story and not the reality. So shout out to all you guys. I understand. Um, when we are talking about the reality of things, and you, however, were the first one that put this on the radar for me, let's talk about Seaspiracy for a minute. Yeah. Okay. You were the first one who mentioned it to me. Uh, and for those of you at home that don't know, it is a trending documentary right now on Netflix that is getting a lot, a lot of attention. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah. So that Seaspiracy movie, um, you know, I was uh, looking through Netflix the other night, saw that and, you know, I watched just about anything kind of ocean related uh, if I'm trying to find something on at night. And uh, yeah, ended up um, watching that. And I thought it brought up some um, first, I kind of thought it was coming from I do think it was coming from a good place. Uh, you know, I, I'm all about I spend, you know, as many days as I can um, on the ocean. So obviously care about the health of the ocean, the health of the fisheries and um, you know, everything, um, uh, involved with it. But, um, I thought, um, overall that movie just painted commercial fishing and, um, uh, just commercial fishing, especially, uh, with a super broad brush. Um, and I think it could have gotten, um, gotten down to the root of some of the problems a little bit more, been more specific, 
uh, with what's going on. Like just, I, I thought the answers uh, that they were trying to give, the solutions that they offered, uh, we shouldn't eat seafood, um, that we should just, nobody should eat seafood and no one should go fishing was kind of the, the bottom line of how it like quickly wrapped up. Um, I think a lot of the things, you know, I'm not completely hating on this movie either. Uh, just to be clear, like, you know, there's, the plastics problem that it brought up is uh, is definitely real. Uh, the problem of commercial fishing gear um, is completely real, and and Kenton can speak to that. You know, from firsthand experience, I I've seen my share of God, plenty of nets and just about anything you can think of floating in the water in both oceans, um, or the Atlantic and the Pacific. And um, but uh, just to to say, you know, the, some of the stuff they were talking about um, are things that I I really don't support as far as like uh, purseining. Um, that type of fisheries of just like mass catching, um, on these factory boats, um, is something that has wiped out entire fisheries. Um, you know, like, uh, Cabo Blanca, you know, wasn't necessarily a tuna thing. I think that was more sardines and things like that, but that was like one of the major, you know, cans like blue, uh, black Marlin fisheries and, you know, there's a few fish there, but it's nowhere close to what it used to be. Like these things are real, you know, these, these fisheries problem exists, but just to say, you know, you don't think you really heard the, heard the term persaining there. Um, you know, I don't think, uh, some of the bottom trawl operations are there. Yeah. And what, what's the, what's the proper name for that? When there's two boats together, those giant men. Yeah. And the bottom trawl, like the straight. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting off subject here because there's all there's all kinds of different trawlers yeah. and stuff. But I mean, so you have pair trawlers, which basically means there's literally two, two. factory boats pulling one giant net, and, yeah. th- and they pull the largest nets in the world. Yeah. Um, and then you have persaining, which is a, like a, a a boat that has you know a ship that tuna tuna persaining. Because let's be clear, there is sustainable um, bait fisheries and sustainable salmon fisheries that involve persaining, but in my opinion, there really is not sustainable tuna fisheries yeah. uh, with a purse saner. And basically, so the purse is like, it's like, it kind of sounds, it's like a big, uh, like a big net that goes around. So they've got a big ship and then they have a smaller boat that pulls a net around the whole school of fish and brings it back. And then they purse it up, meaning they pull it together like a set of purse strings and they scoop up this, literally they scoop up the whole, the whole school. Like it's a very abbreviated version, but the net surrounds the whole school and they put it up. And then what you were talking about is probably bottom trawlers. Yeah. And not all bottom dragging. <clears throat> okay. So bottom dragging is very aggressive on the bottom, but not all bottom dragging is truly unsustainable, exactly. particularly in uh, smaller scale fisheries and things like that and different fisheries. So, but the, the, the problem with seaspiracy, uh, first of all, here's one problem with seaspiracy. On one hand, it's the best documentary I've ever seen pertaining to the fisheries. But on the other hand, they paint such big broad strokes that they actually hurt the little guys that are doing it right. And that's that that's my biggest issue with it. That was my biggest point as well with, yeah. with that is like the little guy, you know, and that's it. And it's like people, you know, obviously we're close to it, you know, like people. You're a commercial fisherman, guys that I grew up with. I do commercial some some commercial fishing guys that I grew up with and know and see at home, you know, are all like, you know, commercial fishermen and, and small time, like in the scheme of things, especially compared to a lot of the operations they're showing are commercial fishermen. I think just to kind of, as a blanket statement, say that, that commercial fishing is bad and there's no such thing as commercial, as sustainable fisheries, um, which was, you know, both things that were said there. I just think that's just completely untrue. Yeah. The takeaway from that is supposed to be a plant-based diet is the only way to go. And so I don't agree with that. Um, 
I mean, admittedly, I'm a little bit biased because I love eating fish and I'm a commercial fisherman, but I do 100% believe in traceability because a lot of the stuff they were saying about like the mislabeling, the MSC, I have been down the road with MSC labeling. I was trying to get the cross sea mount labeling uh, to, you know, to get that as a certified um, fishery. And they wanted $1.2 million just to even take a look at whether my fishery would, you know, that, so they make a lot of money All just in money. these assessments. And so their business is based on, um, MSC is based on, you know, the labeling for, for fisheries, uh, you know, they're in the business of selling fish themselves, right? So... I think I've heard something, and I could be wrong. Someone could correct me. I think they've only ever turned down like one or two uh, fisheries ever that that they actually turned down. If for the ha- label. For the label, yeah. yeah. If you had enough money, it could be pushed through. Yeah, they, they make a ton of money. And then so then there was like a yearly. So it would be like – I believe at the time when I looked at it, they wanted like $1.2 million, which is like way more than an average handline boat makes. And then the maintenance fee was like $100,000 a year. Plus there was labeling for every pound. Like it is a big business, man. Like it is a machine. So um, I think it was really good. They cleared it out. The other thing I thought was really interesting was the fact that the plastic companies are talking about a fucking straw when there is no doubt that half the shit that washes up on our beach, like, you know, I'm big into doing beach cleanups and stuff. Yep. Half the shit I pull off the beach is fishing gear. That's right. not, that's not a fucking lie. No, definitely not. And, uh, you know, I have crossed the ocean and I have definitely run into what you consider like the great Pacific garbage patch. As some fishermen say is fictitious. I don't know if you want to call it fictitious or not, but for three days, as far as the eye could see during the day, I could see garbage. Like just fucking, I know most of the great, Pacific Garbage Patch is in the top 100 feet. It's because it's mostly broken down microplastics. That's where the big problem is. But I can tell you from going through there, I just saw net after net after net after net. In fact, it was so bad at night, uh, even with our spotlight, I ended up wrapping three nets um, in, 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 my, in my path there. There is so much shit out there. And those nets aren't even from around Hawaii. Those nets are from all over the world. The gyre collects them. They're from the Northwest. They're from Russia. They're from Asia. That's the crazy part is we don't even have a net fishery around Hawaii. We don't have like a big net fishery, and but yet we find big industrial nets from around the world here all the time from the way that the currents work. So that's a real problem. Anyone who – I mean I, I just think anyone that says that that's not a real problem – is just in denial, honestly. No, I think I think it's yeah, totally. That's what and that and that's kind of what bothered me. Uh, well, just you know, one of the things that bothered me about that movie is it could have done. I thought it hit on some really good things, but it would just directly go to you know some other things. And again, just blank. They scratched the surface. And, yeah, they so, scratched the surface, and they and they did a good job uh, kind of exposing some things, and it, it got a little lost on uh, on other issues, and you know the solution of you know that I, I think another kind of issue for me is the solution of just straight plant based diet. Like that that also causes it. one. It's not practical, you know. Like it's kind of like a which is ironic with your long hair. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, plant based diet. It's uh, you know that's going to cause its own set of problems. Like you know, like just the infrastructure and everything for that is also not realistic. It's like. You know, it, it's it's kind of like dealing with 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 guns or or even drugs or something like. All right, we're we're past getting getting to the point of getting rid of all that. You know, like you're not gonna. Just, it's easy to say, yeah, if we didn't have them, it wouldn't be a problem. Like, let's figure out the best way to to deal with these things and uh, in a way that's realistic and, and actually a practical solution. 
Yeah, it, I, I agree. And, and there are so many questions. And uh, I think one of the huge problems in the U.S. is that we're already at between imports and farm-raised fish. We're at 91% of the seafood we eat in the mainland U.S. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they saw a dip because of this documentary. And I can't say that that isn't unfounded because so much fish in the mainland um, is coming in wrong. The unfortunate part is that it's going to hurt the guys that are doing it right. Right. And so um, I, 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 I say on this podcast all the time is that what we really need to do is build a, uh, a marketing strategy where people really understand where their fish is coming from, who's catching their fish and how they're catching it. And, you know, in any business, there's going to be winners and losers. And I think if we're going to turn the fishing business towards um, doing it the right way, there's going to be some losers because a lot of the uh, old industry is based on doing shit that is not in the best interest of the fish and the environment. And so I think that's something we really need to look at moving forward because I don't know why we run into this, but we run into this in fishing a lot. People sometimes like to deny the fact that we've just gotten too good at certain things. Yeah. You, you know, like, dude, there's a lot of great fishermen. You're great at it. You Technology know? and time. Right. You know, we're going to figure things out and things are going to, you know, the fishing is going to get better and more efficient as your boats get better and your gear gets better. And, you know, I mean, from sport fishing on, you know, we're things that we're not using linen line and, you know, reels that spin backwards when the drag, uh, you know, the handle spins backwards right. when the drag takes off. It's like, you know. Exactly right. We're getting better and, and the fish populations aren't necessarily uh, always keeping up with that that technology but um yeah it's just you know that and like you said it, it it's i i main thing i kind of took away from that is is just not one wanting uh, a message like that to hurt the the little guy and the guy um that's that's doing the best for for his family multi-generational fisheries like kenton was talking about um and um you know, showing that there is, is sustainable fisheries, you know, like Kenton's, Kenton's fishery, they're like, literally they're pulling every fish in the boat by hand. It's not, you know, there's no, there's no dolphins and whales eating a hand line. No. Um, you know, a lot of that stuff is pe people's picture of what's going on. Our bluefin fishery on the East coast, like there's no nets. We're catching one fish at a time, one fish per boat per day. And it's not like every boat is catching a fish every day. It's, um, you know, and there's some great, they, they interviewed some scientists on there that, um, you know, um, some of them had some, uh, good information and everything, but I think, uh, people like, uh, like Barbara Block, um, out of Stanford, um, who does a tag a giant program and, um, people like that, you know, are, are getting some good information. And, and to be honest, a lot of the information that, um, is coming about these fisheries is from fishermen is how they know, you know what's going on in the ocean well true that's where you get a lot of the good information but you know this is a whole other subject where we can go wildly yeah, we off could go a long time. just because you have good information doesn't mean good information is going to be used one of the problems we run into in fishery management and things like that all the time is that information is pick and choose to meet an agenda same with grants all that stuff uh so often um information like science shouldn't really be debated but a lot of times the science is debated in order to benefit um, its agenda. And so uh, a lot of times in fisheries as well, you've got, you've got the fox watching the hen house. You've got people that are way too uh, vested in the fishery to um, way too vested in the fishery to be, in my opinion, making decisions about fish stocks. We're running into that in Hawaii right now. You know, yeah. um, we just had a recent vote towards a striped marlin and um, 
you know, they, it, it's, it's an abbreviated version, but they just decided like what the idea they came up with, and I don't know if it will ultimately hold, but they, they decided for 2022 to give the guys, uh, more quota than what they're already catching, which is an unsustainable number. So that way they don't have to stop keeping striped Marlin and striped Marlin in my time here and any fisherman's here time here has, unless it's just your last couple of years and you don't have a baseline further back, it's just, it's in trouble. It's in trouble. Uh, all the science shows that it's in, it's in trouble. And, um, I really think that, uh, you know, I really think that we need to take the right steps to, to stop. Like, you know, like I, I just think they're in a lot of trouble. I know they're in trouble. It's not even like, I think they're in trouble. We know they're in trouble. Anyone who's seen them for any amount of time, but it's not like, I, I, I see the fishery vote sometimes and it to me it says like these people don't care about the fish. They they're just caring about money because they're more concerned about keeping a fleet fishing than they are keeping a uh, species thriving or or surviving in our case. And so uh there's so much finger pointing. Like the US is pretty good at this right now. We're pointing a lot of fingers at international agencies saying like, "Oh, well they're doing it worse, they're doing it worse." But my argument is that uh how can you start pointing fingers at people if you're not doing it right yourself you know so i think we need to clean up our act and i think we need to figure out what to do uh before we start blaming other people because um they're in trouble i i know it's not a favorable thing people are groaning out there right now but stripe marlin are in trouble and uh my belief is if you get to that point of the, that, that number, you should stop fishing in a way where you can't catch them. You know, if, if you can't throw a long line in the water without catching them, then you shouldn't throw a long line in the water because you are killing a threatened species in order to catch another one. And to me, that is against the definition of sustainable. You have only charter fished here in what, the last five years? Yep. Okay. How many striped marlin do you think you see in a year? Um, I, I've only done a couple full, like, you know, we catch more of them in the wintertime. I'll, I'll kind of do some other trips in the wintertime. So I haven't been here full time, but oh, I've caught, you know, a dozen strike, maybe a dozen over that time. In five years. Yeah. Okay. Now think about this. I've been trying to really put some information together and it looks like it used to be closer to about a bit more, but 50 yeah. a season. Yeah. Okay, I definitely when I, haven't caught 50. When I, yeah. when I talk to the old timers. And now you're just saying in the five years. Yeah, and that's and that's some some part-time fishing in the wintertime, but you know, maybe maybe closer to, to 20 or so. We've had a couple of days yeah. of catching uh multiples that I think about it. But yeah, not definitely have you ever caught definitely a, no numbers. Have you ever caught a big one? No, the biggest one I've caught was a little over 100 pound, maybe a hundred pounder. You have caught a, like yeah. you caught a, caught caught a true, one, true I've caught pounder. way more. I think I, we caught one. I remember uh, Chris and I caught one like pretty nice one one day that was like right around a hundred pounds. I remember seeing one on another boat. It was probably 120. Okay. Kind of scary, but you're saying a nice one is a hundred pounds. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Think how small like, that a nice is. one here right. is where, yeah. Now, how big would you say the average strike marlin you've seen is here? Here? Yeah. Because um, they're tiny. 40 pounds. 40 pounds. So the average striped marlin is 40 pounds and you've seen a dozen of them in five years, maybe, yeah. maybe 20. Yeah. That doesn't sound like a really healthy striped marlin fishery at all, especially if you talk to the people about the past. I can tell you in even my, you know, roughly 20 years, the numbers are way down. Striped marlin are in trouble. If you've only fished here, maybe 
the last four or five years and you look at the data, well, then you might be like, you know, oh, well, you don't, you don't get that many, but they're in trouble. So we need to do something about that. Um, moving forward here. I mean, we could talk about some of these subjects for absolutely ever. Guaranteed, yeah. I would like you to talk about um, your friend Josh. Yeah. Part, part of the reason this podcast got invented is because I want to remember fishermen. I want a place where they, you know, they're a memorial for all fishermen. And uh, Josh, and I'll let you talk about him, is somebody I would have actually really liked to get on this uh, podcast. And unfortunately, we just lost him. So can you can you tell us about him? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Josh, uh, Josh Stafford uh, was a, a good buddy of mine. Um, I had been fishing with him. Um, same, the Yellowfin crew. Uh, Jeff Garner, uh, his son Hunter, um, was uh, also super close with, with Josh. Um, and uh, yeah, Josh was from Moorhead City, North Carolina. Um, he uh, he was uh, made head sea lures um, out of Moorhead, uh, fished all over the place. He fished with Crafty uh, out on the reef, uh, same guy that, that Kenton and I fished with out there. And uh, yeah, he just passed away. Um, really kind of crazy freak accident. Um, um, back, oh man, it's been about three, three or four weeks ago now, but, uh, kind of out of nowhere. Um, you know, his brother was, was, I was just fishing with him. He was uh, bluefin fishing with us. Josh was supposed to, to come up and go with us and couldn't, couldn't make it up there. Um, which man really sucks now, but, uh, yeah, Josh was, was a mentor to me coming up, um, and was a mentor, uh, even more so to, to a lot of other guys. Um, you know, uh, Hunter Tanner, um, Jack, uh, also Jack helped him build lures, um, out there and, um, uh, Jack and Nathan, um, you know, they, they helped out with head sea a lot. He helped a lot of the young guys, um, to, to get started Was very generous with information, um, was super detail oriented in his, in his fishing, um, was obsessed with, with especially blue Marlin fishing is how he got into lure making. Um, you know, all the little nuances and stuff of, uh, of that part of the sport. Uh, he's one of the first guys that I pulled lures with that would like take time and talk to me when I was younger about, you know, why something worked or why to do something. And he'd give you shit about, you know, keep you, make sure you work hard. You know, he was like one of the hardest working guys that, um, you could have as a, as a crew. Um, you know, could, you know, good, great captain in his own right. But he was like, you know, his home was like being on the deck, like getting dirty and, um, he definitely had a big personality, did things his way, but I mean, you know, at his funeral, just so many people came out, you know, I think it was two or 300 people at the, they had it at the big rock way station. Um, you know, it was a kind of a big celebration of his life afterwards. I mean, tons of stories being told, like everybody I've known guys, you know, when I, when we were out on the reef, I remember talking to Marty Bates and telling him where I was from. And the first thing he says is like, oh, who's, oh, you know, Josh Stafford. Yeah. And, you know, everybody had a story, you know, crafty down there. And, you know, he did a lot of fishing in Costa Rica. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it's just, uh, just kind of makes you think, makes you, makes you appreciate, you know, anytime that you've had guys that you fish with and good friends and stuff. Um, you know, you never know, never know things happen quick and, and you lose people way too early. But Josh was, uh, was a super special, uh, guy to me. Um, you know, he, he really helped me out. He, he'd be working in his shop late at night and give me a call about whatever lures he was making. And he knows I like really, really big, big lures and plugs as, as, as he like to call them. Uh, everybody calls them out there. So he'd call me and send me like five texts of all the biggest stuff he just poured and asked me if that was big enough for me. And, um, 
you know, tell me about whatever, whatever he, whatever was on his mind. And we'd talk, uh, you know, everything from, from hooks to, to lure heads and shapes to, to, you know, whatever was going on, on in your life too. But, uh, yeah, man, it's just, uh, really a shame, uh, that, that he was gone too early, but, but you appreciate, you know, what he taught you and, and the stories you have and, and, uh, the times you, you did have with, uh, with him and, and makes you think like that with, with other guys that you, that you fish with too. And we've had some other ones this year too. Um, you know, some guys that, you know, we both know that passed away recently, but, uh, yeah, that kind of thing really, really hits you hard. No doubt. Well, I'm sure he would be very proud to hear you talking about him right now. I didn't know Josh, uh, other than just messaging with him. Uh, we were friends just on Instagram and, uh, like you said, it seemed like everybody knew him. Everybody had a story. He definitely, he had the runs on the board. I would, he would, he would, he would post, you know, he would send me things back and forth, usually making fun of you, honestly. But, yeah. but you know, that was kind of yeah. our little connection. So, That's right. so it's a shame, man. He, you know, he kept saying like, oh, I can't wait to meet you out there someday. And that day just unfortunately never happened. So. Yeah. You guys are both, uh, yeah, similar, uh, similar stock, man. Hardcore. Like he loved, he loved being on the ocean and talking fishing and anybody that was, you know, he went, Josh went hard on land and at sea. Um, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, he, he would have been a good podcast guest for sure. Let me ask you something. So you just mentioned Josh and I'm on the subject, three most influential people in your sport fishing career. Um, I'll put my my grandfather and my dad kind of in in one there, um, you know. Was, uh, but both both those two without uh, without them, I you know wouldn't have had the opportunities that I did to to meet people and and get involved like their support. Um, you know, when you when you just kind of want to go fishing for a living is is not always what your parents want you want what you know exactly what they want you to do. And, Why is um, that? You know, it's a good question. Um, mine, mine certainly were super supportive. Like my dad took every chance he could to, to take me, whether it was charter fishing or, you know, he bought, you know, he had his own boats and he's, and he was really into it. My granddad was a, was a, uh, a freshwater fisherman mostly. And, uh, he did saltwater as well, but that was his passion. So we did a lot of bass fishing together. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, my dad and, and, and mom too, she definitely, she gets it. They all get it, you know, for, However, that it is, they uh, they understand and get it. So, so that's definitely um, well. Both of my family, I have to give a lot of credit to there. Um, let's see, number two there, um, as far as influential people, um, a guy named um, and there's a ton of people back home that were were really helpful to me, um, but one that. Uh, that helped me and, and still has looked out for me is, uh, uh, Captain Dale Britt, um, out in Moorhead. Um, he, uh, he's been, uh, very, uh, since I was a kid, he introduced me to, uh, Peter Wright, um, Captain Peter B. Wright, um, who's a legendary cans fisherman. And, uh, at the time he was a, a Marlin Magazine editor. That's, that was one of the main, besides his fishing accolades, um, you know, he, uh, he was Marlon magazine editor. I wanted to, to write for Marlon when I was like 16, 17. And, um, and so I, you know, he set me up to, to have dinner with him and ask him some questions and kind of pick his brain, which was, was, you know, like meeting a, you know, to me, like a famous basketball or sports guy for what some people would be. So, uh, yeah, Dale, uh, definitely was, um, was a huge one. Um, and, um, 
man, there's been uh, been a ton of people kind of kind of later on. You got you know guys like Crafty and stuff. It was so huge for me to fish on the reef and fish with somebody like him and and pick his brain. He's one I'd put up there. Uh, Jeff Garner on the Yellowfin. He's like invited me fishing with him since I was a kid from tuna fishing to um, you know when I was really young to you know just meat fishing and stuff like he's he's just giving me the opportunities uh, and continues to today i'll be fishing with him this year um and uh yeah he, he's another one that was just like you know just just somebody giving you the opportunity when you want to learn and and when you're coming up is is kind of huge you know if you're not out there you're not gonna gonna learn as much as you would so uh yeah you just gotta get the opportunities and those two guys um man there's there's a ton of of uh of guys kind of in that that time that have been and then here in kona um you know fishing with chris has been great you've been huge you know you and i have you you've been great to to fish with learn with hang with you know um cheers buddy yeah buddy for thanks, sure man. Thanks, we, man we've had some uh some good times and you know if it wasn't for you i wouldn't have gone out to uh uh to the reef which was like one of my like dreams since i was a kid you know reading books about it but yeah man i could i could keep going on with like shout outs to everybody um you know chip uh, Chip Van Moles, Nick Durham, um, you know, there's tons of people that, that have, have let me go, go fish with them that, uh, here that, you know, I could just go down the line, but who really helped me talk to me and, you know, consider friends and feel really fortunate for that. Awesome, man. Totally awesome. Yeah. You know, I think that's really great that, uh, you appreciate all those people because sometimes I think the generation we live in now where it's me, 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 me instantly. Like I think sometimes the newer fishermen and I'm not, I'm not taking a shot at anyone. Sometimes I think maybe younger fishermen don't appreciate that everything they do today on some level came from, uh, a cutout of the past, you know, like there was someone who's pioneered it or did it like, I think a lot of times people take for granted that everything had to be invented. Like everything we use, like outrigger clips, like even though like the simplest day-to-day stuff, somebody had to develop that. So I think it's really great that you recognize that because for me, I, I all the time, I'm so appreciative. Like I, I have learned so much from so many people and I thank all of them. And you know, it's not always, it's not always the best stuff you learn from people. Sometimes it's the worst. Sometimes you learn from someone how you never want to treat somebody. Yeah. But whatever it is, you have the um, ability uh, to learn something from everybody. So I think that's great. And I really appreciate the fact that you're very appreciative of those people. I really appreciate the fact that you threw me a shout out in there. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, man. Lots of people I'm leaving out. Oh, Ryan O'Halloran. Let me, he, just, he was just a guest. Ryan's been awesome. He's a, he's a tiger. Yes, he's a gem. That's a very good guy. Yeah, there's tons of people I probably left out, but well, anyway, but, yeah. Well, you know, but this could be a back. Yeah, this we won't could, do a shout-out list yet. But, well, yeah. the thing was the three most influential, so, yeah, you, know, so, you, so you nailed it. 15, so yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah you nailed it. I mean, I'd, now you're just going for brownie points. Yeah, so that's right. You, I don't think you're going to hurt anyone's feelings. You might, you know, if you'd only actually stuck to the three, you wouldn't hurt people's feelings because it's the three most. You but know, the fact that you just named half the harbor and you left half out. That's a good now point. Now you might have actually hurt people's feelings. That's a good point. I yeah. should have stuck with the three. Yeah. Um, leaving your uh, camera. Well, I don't want to say camera. Uh, leaving your career in movies. What do you wish you had known about the charter fishing business before you had gotten out of it? 
If you were like, what would what what do you wish you had known before you gave up your your, your job? Um, I think you know I'd, I'd worked in it a little bit um, before, so I, I had a decent idea. I don't think there was too much that was. Uh, that was like super surprising to me um, about that. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I, I'd wished I'd left it sooner, but I almost felt like, I, I think the toughest thing leaving for me was that I'd been out of the like full-time fishing game for for a little bit. So I felt like I was like playing catch up, like, oh shit, okay, I haven't been like fishing. You know, it's different when you're on the water every single day, when you're on the water like, you know, 200 plus days a year, you know, you're just in like a different rhythm. You're, you're way smoother. And so I felt like, you know, I had to, had to catch up and get, um, get like better. And especially coming here, I was learning, like I'd pulled lures, but I'd never been like the guy, you know, doing it for like serious blue Marlin fishing as far as being on deck and being like the first crew to rig everything and everything. So that, that was, um, you know, that, that's a different answer. Um, you know, but I wished I had, uh, you know, I wish I'd been more, I'm glad I did what I did in the in the in the film where I had a great time, great experience, and everything. But uh, you know, I'm like, man, I would you know like to think what I could be doing if I if I'd spent that time uh, fishing too. But what I wish I'd known about the uh, charter industry, I knew it wasn't anything to you'd get rich at or or anything like that. But you're um, not getting rich doing this. You know, doesn't seem to be. Yeah, no, no, not, uh, you know, not getting in too high a tax bracket with just straight fishing, you know, it doesn't seem to. No, I think that is a misconception that some people have, you know, they just, they see, they think they see, uh, you know, they pay a bunch of money for a charter and they have just no reality based on how much it actually costs to operate a business that a lot of people, I think if they go on a charter the first time and they think like, Wow, we spent a thousand dollars to go fishing today. These guys are making so much money. They have no idea that maybe they just burnt up half of that just in fuel alone. Yeah, that's you know? a thing. Like, it's fuel, like you know, and that's that's a thing. You know, especially if you're, you know, Chris. You know, we're a owner operator rig, so so that's one thing. You know, is it, it is tough. You know, if you're not fishing like every single day, you're it, it's hard to come ahead. Let me ask you this: if you could debunk one myth about charter fishing what would it be um just that i think what i think it's just kind of under appreciated um maybe everybody thinks their job is i you know not i think people just assume that it's super easy that you know i think when you're coming out on the charter and you're like and you you enjoy it um you know you like to go fishing you're like man you guys have it have it so easy it's you know you're out here fishing every day and don't get me wrong i wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love doing it. Like, you know, I, I love doing that more than any other job. I've had a lot of different kinds of jobs, but, um, so, so it's definitely not that, but, uh, but there's a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice that, that goes into it. And I think that's something that, uh, that people kind of don't realize who are coming out fishing for the day. Like, I mean, I, I do think it, it can be, you know, the best job in the world, but, uh, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of sacrifice that goes into it. And, um, you know, it's not always, you know, just, oh, we're going fishing and everything's awesome. Boats break down and, you know, sometimes the fishing's not great and sometimes you might not, you know, it's rough or the weather's bad or you've gone for 40 days straight or whatever it is, you know. Um, you know, it's not the easiest on relationships, whether it's with your, your friends and family or girlfriend or whatever it is, you know. It's uh, especially when you're trying to do the travel program, you know. Like, I you know, I want to fish 
all over the place and all these fisheries that we see, you know, and, uh, and I've been fortunate to fish a few of them. Um, but when you're on, on the road all the time and, and all these other places, you know, you don't have a, a central home base. It's, it's, it's kind of tough to, to keep those relationships with, with everybody, um, as strong as you'd like them to. It's hard to keep in touch when you're in different time zones. So just some of that, um, you know, I would say would be, uh, something that people often aren't aware of. Uh, what was your biggest failure in the, in this career and what did you learn from it? Biggest failure. Hmm. Um, besides biggest, your haircut, biggest failure. Um, man, Let's see. I, I can't think of any like huge thing right off the top of my head, which makes it sound like uh, I You're certainly, delusional. certainly hadn't done everything right. Um, biggest failure like career as far as like... What's, what's been the biggest failure in your fishing career and what did you learn from it? Um, did you have some tackle fail? Did you have anything like that? Did you, did you ever overlook something and it broke or... I've been pretty lucky, um, you know, as far as, as, as tackle and things like that go. I can't think of, uh, there's definitely been times of, you know, holding on to fish too long or not holding on long enough and stuff like that. Um, you know, you have some like, uh, we've had, you know, you and I had a tournament fish together that, you know, I don't necessarily think was uh, maybe not anybody's fault, but, uh, you know, you come back and the, and the hook's like, hooks a little bit slightly uh, tweaked slightly tweaked and you're like i'm like oh fuck did i hold on too long and you know pulling that fish too hard or or what but it's in a tournament you want to get it up and it all happens fast so yeah i mean all that stuff um anytime you lose one anytime you you miss fish you know we've had times of catching oh my god i think maybe i've done like 11 in a row or so of getting bites one time uh, a couple years ago and then i've gone just as many of missing fish um, missed 11 fish in a row afterwards oh 100 yeah 100 yeah. If, if usually if i get like six in a row we'll catch there'll be six in a row after that uh that, that we'll lose you know i mean like as far as bites and stuff like do that. do you think you've learned anything from that failure or do you think you just appreciate that the odds always work out well you got to try to learn something from it anyway you know like you're trying to figure out if you're not trying to figure out what's going wrong then you know i mean you got to be trying to get better in my opinion you know every fish that you lose i'm like okay like i've we do, Chris and I, you know, have, have shot this, this little Marlin magazine series, um, on YouTube. And, and so we'd like have just about, What's that called? it's called visions of granders. Um, and it's on, on YouTube. Um, hopefully we'll have some new episodes shortly. Uh, COVID definitely set that back from kind of the pace that we had before. Um, but it's, uh, kind of raw a little bit, look at some of, uh, some of our fishing and some of the highlights and maybe sometimes low lights, but, uh, stuff that, uh, what, you know, our does it really comes. show the true low lights of the fishing industry or does it, well, have no, to ha- a, does it have to have a positive spin? Cause you're trying to sell charters. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, I mean, we're not putting maybe, uh, the no, worst over, things on there. We probably, I'm sure we put, you know, losing fish and things like that. Um, but no, like, uh, deckhands pissing their pants or anything or over, no, overdosing, nothing like that. No, 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 okay, those, okay, things, yeah. no those things on here. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we try to show a little bit of like, you know, what, what the fishing's like in Kona. Um, you know, we don't make you watch like four hours of looking at lures with no, uh, no bites, you know, nobody wants to watch that, I guess, unfortunately. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so so we do edit it up a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, but, but like, yeah, filming 
each one of those fish, I'm kind of looking at it and, and trying to figure out like what I could do better each time. And, and there's always something you can do better in, in my opinion. So, uh, so yeah, things like that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like a really specific instance, but, uh, yeah, that, that tournament fish was definitely one that hurt. And again, not that it's hard to think about doing, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what we could have done different exactly, but yeah, I mean, I would have let go faster knowing what I know now anyway. Sounds like you're dwelling on that a lot longer than me. I would just let that go and move forward, my friend. Yeah, exactly. I think <laughs> I think that's why it's hard for me to think about. It. I try to like you know get, you just got to move on from man. what you can. But yeah, you can't dwell on it too much. You got to put the shit back out and try to catch another one right afterwards. Well, that's so, it, man. You don't know. You know Maybe you put it out key. there and catch a bigger one. Yeah, you know? that's the magical thing about fishing, man. Sometimes in my life, anyways, my lowest moments in my life have been cured by going right back out at sea. Like, all right, fish got away. Put the stuff right back up there. Like. My hardest moments in life have always been cured by just going a little bit harder and just staying the distance. So, well, and you know what? If I okay, so I just thought of one time that was a, uh, I think was a uh, critical uh, moment in my my fishing career. Um, to start off with, when I, when I was going out on charters with my dad and stuff growing up, like it took me forever to catch a blue marlin at first, like as an angler or whatever. You know, was this on the east coast? Back on the east coast, yeah. Okay. So I I started going offshore um, with my dad when I was like on charters and stuff, or going with friends or whatever it was. When I was like ten years old or eleven years old or something like that, my dad would finally like beg him to let me go out there, and and finally we went. I think he was worried about it getting really rough and me getting. Uh, getting uh, not wanting to go anymore and it got really rough but I kept wanting to go whatever so anyway it took me I don't remember exactly how old I was when I caught my first billfish I think it was uh, I might have been like 19 or something I think around 18 or 19 when I caught my first billfish and that was a sailfish but I'd want to catch a marlin forever but this was like I was convinced I'd gone on more trips offshore like and actually been a part of tournaments and stuff like that I'd We'd had them on, they'd come off, whatever, um, than like anybody else at that time. And I think that really just like pushed me to, I was like, no, I'm not going to let these fuckers beat me like this. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to like figure out how to catch these things. But there was one particular tournament during that time that I was probably 16, 17, had a buddy that came and we like threw down on this Ducks Unlimited tournament. We fished with this guy who we had done some meat fishing with and, um, and had some good success there. But, Explain uh, to the people at home, what is meat fishing? Yeah, so that's when we're, like, uh, going for fish that we're going to take home and, and eat. Like, um, you know, there's not really, like, here in Hawaii, um, you know, some billfish, you know, mar blue marlin stuff, they'll be smoking and eating over there. It's mainly your uh, tuna, do dolphin, or mahi-mahis, and uh, wahoo. And so that's primarily, you know, some bottom fish and stuff like that, but typically... Tuna, wahoo, and, and mahis are what we're, we're going for. Um, and a wahoo, for those of you that don't know, you heard him mention ono before. What we call an ono in Hawaii is what they call a wahoo most everywhere else on earth. That's right. And like dolphin or dolphin fish is the same thing as mahi-mahi. We're not killing flipper. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're, we're meat fishing and we did this tournament. And man, we had more bites, more billfish bites than just uh, i mean probably any other tournament i've been in i don't know how many we would have we would have won the tournament if we caught like two-thirds of our bites or come close to it and placed if we did anything at all but these guys were just like i don't know it ended up they didn't know what they were doing bill fishing and i was i was a young kid but was like looking and realizing part of what we were doing was not right and um yeah so i ended up being the angler we finally hooked actually got a hook into something that's a really longer story to why we weren't. But anyway, um, 
we got a hook in something. This fish, I don't know what it was, but it was pulling so damn hard. I think we had it on a 50 if I remember right. I was in the chair. We didn't have a harness. I remember uh, my dad and my buddy Justin taking turns with their shoulder into the rod because it was just, we had to put a pile of drag on the fish just to keep the rod up in the chair. And um, yeah, we had it on for a long time. It kind of stopped, was kind of dead weight. Thinking what I know and what I know now, I think it was a a decent sized marlin, who knows how big, that sounded and died probably down there. Never jumped, never did anything. Uh, that line ended up being hung up in some other line, like a pile of line. Like we started cranking up and there was just this bird nest of stuff and we were still tight. And uh, so I don't know if it was a fish that had spooled somebody or something and got wrapped in our that line got wrapped up in ours but we slowly started pulling that that's line crazy off, cutting it out it was nuts man it was nuts and uh yeah we pull and it's just like dead weight for a while but then at some point there was a huge surge like it kind of goes down like rod almost comes out of my hand i remember i'm just like steady cranking and uh so yeah it's still pulling and then those guys that we were fishing with um they uh they would start talking about, oh, maybe we should just cut the line. This is like, I think we're just hung up on something or like we're, we're hung up on a pile of trash or something. I'm like, pile of trash doesn't run when we're like going backwards and this thing's like running. We're in like three, 400 fathoms, whatever we were. Like we're not on the bottom. Like it's something. And there really wasn't much argument. Like, I don't know. I, I, that, the part like right before, I don't remember, but one of the mates just goes over and just cuts it off. And... I was like, how's that possible? I was like, what? And everybody's just sitting there, me and my dad, my buddy, Justin, uh, and are just sitting there just like, what the fuck just happened? You know? And, uh, and I remember just like going straight up to the bridge and just like sitting there. It's like, didn't speak to anybody. I think I went inside and I went over Oh, the you're bridge. the guy who didn't speak to anybody on a charter. Oh, oh. Dude, I, I would have told anybody on that boat why. I told everything <laughs> about on the boat. It was very clear why I wasn't. I was glad to tell you. I think it, I think my dad would tell you that's one of his like biggest regrets in life is not like tackling the dude before he like did. And it happened fast. Like there wasn't any discussion, you know? I mean, I was clearly in favor of Nobody like, even thought out like how this is not possible to be snagged on something. And we're like, and we caught fuck all in the tournament. What, what, you know, we reel it in and it's a huge, you know, it's a huge net. What does it hurt? You know, we're down in the points. Like, let's just see what it is. Like best case scenario, it's a dead blue marlin on the end or or just down there swimming, you know, and we got, it could have been an 80, I think it was a 50, but anyway, you know, it's just like crazy, whatever. But that, you know, that was one of those things where, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would have, it would have been a mutiny on the boat to, uh, before that line got cut. And I was, you know, I think that was another thing where it's like, you know, you've had charters ask you like, so oh, what is the lesson learned there? Speak never, up. never quit, man. And speak up. Yeah. Don't, don't let anybody cut your shit off. If you don't think it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I would never, never take it or break it. Yeah. Take it or break it. Like it's one thing if we were like, let's put a pile of drag, see what happens and, and wind them up. You know, it's getting rough. You get in those situations sometimes where you, where you got to push it up, you know, and you don't want to be fighting something forever. You know, that's, that's, uh, that is what it is. But I knew that combined with, um, the other things that I'd seen were speeding up the boat to try to set the hook on like sailfish and stuff, you know, just things that I was like, we're not doing things right. We're getting the shots, we're getting the opportunities and we're not doing things right. And I think that now you, now you're, now you're able to see that those 
weren't the right technique. Yeah, that that just made me want to want to do things better, you know, and and I still every time want to do you know, do things better and better than, than I did last time and learn from whoever I can learn from and whatever, you know, there's always something you can pick up and, and there's still plenty I got to, you know, I can still pick up. So, but yeah, that was, that was one time that sticks out of, you know, wasn't necessarily a mistake we made, but we didn't, we weren't able to stop the mistake. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's a good one. Um, let me ask you, you're from the East coast. All right. Yeah. I in Hawaii. And uh, you probably were raised on a very anti-killing marlin um, sediment. And yes. now you're out in Hawaii where we kill marlin. Let's talk about the double standard of killing marlin. I see on the internet, on a regular basis, fellow marlin fishermen belittling other marlin fishermen for killing a marlin. Now, my thought process on that is that that is a jaded way of looking at things because I believe that if you marlin fish for any amount of time, it's 100% impossible to not kill a marlin. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I am very pro catch and release, but I think it is ridiculous that every time someone posts a picture of one fish they decided to harvest in a year, that they, you know, that they say, hey, don't kill them, don't do this because if you marlin fish long enough, it is my belief that it is impossible not to kill them because I've just seen it too many times. I, I've, I, I have been – I've marlin fished for many, many years with the intentions of letting fish go and sometimes they just come up dead. So I'd like to hear your thoughts having come from the East Coast and now you live in Hawaii. Yeah, my thoughts uh, now are and – I, and I don't think they've changed a ton um, being out here. It's changed probably a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think if you're the bottom line for me is if you're going to pull, if you're going to pull hooks in the water for Marlin, if you're Marlin fishing and you absolutely do not want to kill a Marlin, do not believe in killing Marlin, then you might as well go back home. Like don't you're not, the, don't put a hook in the water. Don't put, if whatever you're fishing for, you don't want to kill, don't put a hook in the water. Cause you're going to do it. If you, you know, you might, if you catch one in your life and you let it go and it swims off fine. Great. But if you're, if you're spending the time that that we're spending out there, like some fish are going to die. Some, you know, whether, whether you take it home in the boat or whether you let it go, like something, you know, there's a chance that it's going to die no matter. And we spend a lot of time, um, you know, benchmark program. We spend a lot of time trying to, uh, let them go and trying to, trying to make sure we can revive them. We kill very few, you know, killed tournament fish, a couple that came up, got tail wrapped or whatever, but there's a million things that can happen. You can get one tail wrapped. You can, um, whatever. And the other side of the story is people here, they're used here. You know, people eat them. Um, you know, they feed families, they feel, feed lots of people. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of times, and I don't, you know, I don't want to see every Marlin that gets caught, get killed. Um, but I think you're fooling yourself. If you don't think some Marlin, there's going to be some casualties in, in your fishing. Um, you know, I love the catch and release side of it. I think, you know, I, I like to let them go. I like to watch them swim away. Um, you know, I'd, uh, Hell, it's a lot easier for me than, than coming home and, and cutting one up, you know, some, some days if you don't, if you don't feel like doing that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, but I've also, since I was a little kid, wanted to hang one up in the, uh, big rock and, and kind of be that guy and win that tournament. And, um, and that's something that, you know, I don't, I'd, I'd tell anybody if, if I caught one that I thought was a thousand pounds, um, I don't have any problem stroking it. I would rather be able to hang it up and let it swim away and but that's just and, not how it and works breed and all that stuff man but just being like completely honest like i'm not gonna 
you know, that giant one that I've been looking for comes up there, I'm not reaching for the tag stick. You know what I mean? I'm not, <laughs> that, that's not, uh, you know, and I wish it wasn't, I wish I could let them all go and whatever, but uh, it's just, that's just not, not. This is not how the male ego works. Yeah, man, whether it's ego or whatever it is, like, look, I, I think all the breeding females should, uh, should I, I'd like to see them all keep doing it. I want there to be as many marlin in the ocean as possible. So certainly in favor of the research, the tag and release, all that stuff. But uh, I think uh, killing it is a part of it. And it, you know, it goes back to trying to figure out like a sustainable way to do it. You know, all the research I've seen, basically the sport fishery is not a huge it's impact. It's such a small on that. number. It's a tiny, uh, tiny number of the, the billfish casualties each year. and um, It's a fraction. That's That's the thing is that... You know, the amount of marlin that are actually killed by the sport fishing industry is so minuscule. It really, really is. In the whole scheme yeah. of things, it's just it's just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. You know, so that that's why I don't have a problem with with harvesting a fish now and then. And again, you know, you know me, I, I prefer not to even keep them. Yeah. So it's only if they come up dead that I even deal with a big one. Like, I don't, I don't want a big fish. Like, I really don't. So, yeah. um I mean, if I was in a tournament or something, of course. I mean, I'm not, you know, and here's a weird thing about the double standard. People often will say, oh, you shouldn't kill that unless it's in a tournament. We have a weird thing in society where we think it's okay to kill a fish if there's money attached to it. Why should that person not be allowed to harvest that fish and feed their family? And then this other person would kill that same fish if it was in a tournament for money. That's such a crazy thought process to me. Isn't it more meaningful almost to harvest the fish to eat and feed a family than it is to fucking weigh, high five, you get money, and the fish is probably going in a dumpster or like fucking, or it's going to be given, quote unquote, you know, to given to some family that they don't really know versus a family who harvests the fish and eats it themselves. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize about it. Like, especially Hawaii, you know, is those fish are going to people, you know, like you, if you, if you can't do anything, your charter can't do anything with a fish. You have one, like in, in our case, a lot of times if it comes up dead or tournament or whatever, like we're on the phone and we're, we're like usually not selling that fish. We're usually giving, giving it away yeah. to somebody who's stoked to come down and get it, you know, and right. feed a lot of people and come clean it. Like it's, that's what people don't understand about that. And, uh, you know, a lot of that hate that you, you know, that people want to, um, you know, dish out online. It's easy to sit behind a computer and, and, you know, it's easy, you know, it's a really easy position to say any dead fish is, is bad, 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 whatever behind a computer. And, and I, you know, the, what people don't realize is, is those of us like part of, um, you know, these fisheries and stuff, like nobody wants to protect these fish more than we do. Like, it's very true. You know, like the fishermen do more for those fisheries and, you know, than anybody else a lot of time. Like that keyboard warrior most of the time hasn't done jack shit for any right. billfish, you know, and probably a lot of time, you know, there's, and there's some guys in our industry who, who, you know, are really against all killing a billfish and stuff and whatever you're open to your opinion. But I just think you can't be bar none like it, against, there's just not a hundred percent. It just goes back to, there's not a, if you do it long enough, you cannot not kill one. Yeah. You may not bring it in and weigh it, but you fucking killed some. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. You might feel bad about it. You uh, might. You, maybe you don't tell anybody about it, but... I mean, I have seen enough marlin floating over the years. Yeah. Especially in... Or, and, and, and you know where I... Re, like, I've seen enough marlin floating over the years that were released to know that they don't all make it. And I'll tell you where, before they went to circle hooks, 
uh, in certain areas like Costa Rica, Florida, they would have after these catch and release tournaments, there'd be sailfish all over the place. Yeah. You know, like circle hooks have helped that a lot. But, you know, a lot of those same people that w- would say, like, we don't kill billfish, go go, go drive around some of those sailfish areas after a tournament a couple days afterwards and let me know how many. You may not have put them in the boat, but you killed some sailfish so, yeah. or you killed some marlin. So. Exactly. You might not be taking them to the scale. but and, and another thing about this Kona fishery to, like, mention with that is, like, all – the vast majority of the marlin that we catch, unless there's something weird going on or whatever, we're taking the hooks out of the fish. Yeah, the hooks. The, we're not even cutting them off. We're right. getting a hook out of them. Yeah, we're not, yeah. you know, like you look at our gloves are scarred up. We go through a couple pairs a year or whatever because we're like, you know, pulling the hooks out of the fish beside the boat. We're not doing the Palm Beach release, the the uh, swivel hits a rod tip and, and cut it off or whatever you want to call it. You know, it's like just the, the the typical touch the leader release like we're trying to get these fish to the boat and pull the hooks out of them and let them go and swim them beside the boat or whatever it is you know so there, there, there's tournaments where we can do the touch the leader release but we're still getting the hooks but like you want to get your rig back most of the time or you want to get your lure back or whatever it is but a lot of fisheries bill fisheries aren't like that and and that is one thing in kona that the ones we let go we're we're a lot of times trying to let them go as healthy as we can very true let me ask you this we're getting near the end here, but I want to ask you before we do a uh, round of quick questions. Most beautiful thing you've ever seen out at sea, besides me? Ah, oh, man, I know that was going to be the easy answer. <laughs> I know. I, w- I just didn't want you to think you could have the freebie on this. Yeah, yeah, that would have been too easy. No, um, man. There's been there's been so many things with like seeing different things with uh, with with sunsets and you know different. Uh, different things with with fishing especially but one thing that always sticks out in my head and and you know it's partly like most beautiful as far as like visual but just like a moment that that I uh, that I appreciated a lot that I kind of always go back to when when people talk about like what what we do and whatnot is uh, actually out on the reef as well um, it was uh, that Halloween the Halloween party that we went out uh, <laughs> there for that one too. Uh, we were we were out on uh, that mothership uh, with uh, what was it the Scary guys the Dreaming On guys Dreaming On um, yeah. and uh, yeah Crafty and Sharky the, Sharky and the boys came and picked us up on the. Uh, the tender and brought us over there so we're all like and we had that charter that was sleeping remember yeah, they, that they were sleeping they oh. thought they, they we we said yeah we're going to bed early they went and passed out and we, we were like yeah we're gonna we're gonna take have an easy one and then we we just like slip out and go party on this we did we did forever. the old trick we did like the little kid trick where you trick your kid to go to sleep yeah, and then, yeah exactly and then the, then the we're parents, all going to sleep and then the kids are the kids go to sleep and then the parents are partying yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. So okay good nighty yeah so we pull this maneuver and uh and it's like a bunch of a bunch of like legends on the boat, you know, just like a good crew. Everybody's, you know, having a good time. And I remember, we, you know, I got a drink in my hand. We're on the on the front of this, what, probably 100, 100 120 foot mothership or whatever it was. I can't even remember what mothership that was. I can't, but, remember, but the, I can't remember which one. I, I remember that I they had a naked, uh, like a, they had a, a blow up doll hanging yeah. from the outrigger with a like a with a noose around noose its neck. Around its but, neck. Everybody's dressed like there's a bunch of guys in costumes and stuff. They, those guys were all rafted up together. We had to sneak over, and then uh, it was uh, oh man, there's a bunch of uh, 
Yeah, anyway, great crowd on the yeah, boat, that was, whatever. That was, but, a, that was a good night. But the time I'm thinking of was like, I actually just went to take a piss. And I'm literally standing on the bow of this mothership to take a piss. Everybody's partying. I got a drink in my hand. We're just like, everybody's laughing, having a good time. Like, Junior's there. I remember this when he was doing his... Yeah, uh, Junior yeah. just... He just went his, off about his rope his, demonstration, his, his rope demonstration his, his about, about his father working on the commercial fishing boats. Yeah. Yeah. And so everybody's laughing, having a good time, whatever. But I remember like walking up, we're all like kind of up on the bow, but again, it's a hundred and some foot boat. So there's plenty of room. I go up to the, to the bow standing up there, like very tip, taking a piss off the, off the edge of the boat. And I'm like looking around and I'm on the great barrier reef and the stars are like insane. I mean, you're, I can't remember exactly. We were still out front then, we were, but we were whatever forty forty miles offshore. Or so, and um, I think it, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think we were anchored behind number five. Was that number? F- oh, we might have been that. Far I think down. we were in the middle ribbons. Yeah, I think we yeah, were up a little yeah. bit further, but yeah, we probably had gone up that far then. So yeah, so we're we're up there. You know, that's there's not not a whole lot of lights real close to uh, number five, so it's dark. Like you can see the Southern Cross up there. You know, the sky is just like insane and you're like man a lot of people don't get to see this this kind of sky anywhere but let alone like i'm on the great barrier reef black marlin fishing like from when i was a, a little kid like i read a book with brazaca in it you know with a bunch of brazaca stories it was the first time i remember reading about the reef and then and then obviously a ton of stuff after that and so that was something that i'd like always wanted to do and i'm like man i'm working on a boat you know i'm a i'm a crew on the on a boat on the great barrier reef i'm taking a piss off their mothership <laughs> the great barrier reef with a drink in my hand partying with the boys like and it was just i was like man this is this is pretty awesome like you just take a moment while it's while it's happening to to appreciate it and and, and especially after but you know but that that's one that sticks out to me of just like beautiful night you know dick all the way hand. around dick in my hand <laughs> just like all my best memories you know <laughs> So yeah, that's one that stands out. There's been a ton of, of, of cool things, man. We we're all lucky to see a lot of a lot of cool stuff out there, and and, uh, and a lot of really beautiful things, you know. But but yeah, just as far as like a moment goes, that's one that that always sticks out to me. That is a beautiful moment. That was a good night. It's pretty cool that you appreciated that too. Like, I mean, I I wasn't there when you had your dick in your hand, but I was on the. Thankfully the boat. not that time. <laughs> thankfully not. <laughs> thankfully not. Thankfully not that time. No. But no, that was uh, that was a really fun night, and I I feel the same way about the Great Barrier Reef and just the ocean at night. I mean, sometimes it is just impossible to tell like where the heavens begin and the ocean ends. It's just epic at night out at sea. It's insane, man. Uh, it's I love the nighttime out there. Like it's incredible. Yeah, I sit out there a lot of times on the back of the boat, the lights on, and you're looking at whatever's swimming up behind the boat, whether it's. Oh yeah, and then you got the lights in the water. There's all kinds of random shit on the Great Barrier Reef. You're like, like, what the fuck is that thing? I just sit out there with a beard, like whatever. Like everybody's asleep, and I'm like, like I, you know, dropping a line out and catching fish I've never seen before. You know, yeah, it's just it's just insane, man. Okay, we're gonna wrap this up with some uh, basically multiple choice type questions. Um, No long explanation, just kind of go off. Bluefin or blue marlin? Blue marlin still. Good call. Commercial fishing or sport fishing? Sport fishing for me overall. Lures or live bait? Hmm. Uh, lures. I was in more. Yeah. Blondes or brunette? 
Historically blondes. Are all redheads crazy or just 90% of them? All. I agree. Favorite whiskey? Oh, Maker's Mark. Well, yeah, let's just go with Maker's. Favorite fish to catch? Blue Marlin. Blue Marlin again, huh? Well, those are pretty much all my really tough questions. Any final thoughts or inspirational quotes that you would like to leave for future fishermen listening to this podcast? Oh, man. You know, we've talked a lot about, uh, yeah, just, just enjoy your time out on the water. Um, you know, appreciate, uh, appreciate what you get to do. It's pretty special to be able to get out there and, and fish for these things that, um, you know, or if you live this, this kind of life, um, you know, it, it's uh, appreciate what you got. Appreciate, you know, we're talking about Josh and things like that. Appreciate the people that you're with, um, you know, just like everything's super fast paced and we're all trying to get, you know, we're, we're trying to get better and we're trying to do the next thing and whatever, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different kind of, it's a fast paced world and stuff, but yeah, just, uh, just appreciate the people you're with, uh, you know, those around you work hard, you know, uh, try to, try to just like, you know, I'll grind the next person. Um, if you want to, if you have, have goals in, in fishing or whatever it is, um, I think just like staying at it and not, not getting, um, not getting frustrated. You know, if you have a goal, um, you know, do it, you know, just find a way, uh, just find a way to, to, to do what you want to do. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, and be safe with what you do out on the water. You know, it's fucking dangerous too. You know, uh, some of the, some of the situations we get ourselves into and everything else, you know, we have a good time out there, but, but, uh, but, but you got to come home. So that's, that's the other thing is, uh, is safety. So, um, yeah, man. Um, uh, yeah, that's, those are the main, main things probably. Uh, people that are interested in getting a hold of you for camera work or coming Marlin fishing with you, how do people find you? Yeah, so I got a few things. Instagram is uh, definitely what I'm what I'm most active on, uh, and that is at Jables Photo, which is J A Y B L E S, and then photo. So at Jables Photo, um, and uh, Facebook is Jables Photography. Website is uh, JablesPhotography.com. Um, so yeah, those are those are the best ways. Instagram is definitely um, probably where I'm most active. Uh, there's a contact form on, on the website. It's going to be some some updated, more updated stuff coming up there soon. Um, kind of been in a little transition of, of trying to get some more things uh, together there. But yeah, it's, you yourself uh, have a podcast coming out soon. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, we'll be doing a podcast soon. Um, so I'll uh, I, we're still working out some some details with uh, with that. But hopefully, actually, in the next next week or so, um, I'll be doing, uh, some of my own stuff and some with, uh, with my buddy, Nick Durham with, uh, with tantrum lures. He's got a, a podcast called the transom door podcast. So we'll be combining on some stuff. I'll be doing some stuff, uh, solo and, um, yeah, it's, it, I'm looking forward to that and, uh, getting a little bit more, uh, interactive with this whole thing. So, uh, yeah, any of those ways you can, you can catch me for photos, fishing. If you want to come fishing out in Hawaii, if you want to fish in North Carolina, um, and even some other places, um, you know, reach out, we can get you hooked up. Um, so yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for your time. I yeah, greatly man. appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Always Here's enjoy it. Thanks for having me on for Josh, for sure. Yeah, pleasure. man. Thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate it. And, uh, 
Aloha. Thank to you. Everyone it's been fun. Yeah. Thank you. Aloha. Have a, have a good night. Hey guys, thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it. I am overwhelmed by the response I've gotten, especially for something I just wasn't really sure if this content was, uh, there was as much of a want for it as, uh, as much as there was that I wanted to share it. So been very overwhelmed. And so thank you very much. Um, also, I just, if you guys, you're liking this content, you want to hear more about me uh, and, and what I do, uh, from the other side, uh, I have been on two podcasts recently. Uh, one just dropped yesterday from Seabros Fishing. Really, really enjoyed talking to those guys. That was a much, much more technical, fishing-based, career-based uh, conversation. Um, and that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed those guys. Really professional. Cleaner. Uh, definitely a cleaner, uh, more polished model than me. Um, uh, really enjoyed talking to those guys. Uh Highly recommend you follow them, regardless if you don't want to hear more from me or not. Definitely check out their podcast. They've got a lot of great stuff. I personally follow them, and I was originally connected uh, to them uh, from Joe. So I thought we should definitely mention him. And then again, uh, there is the Tricks of the Trade podcast. It's a local podcast. Uh, It's where it all started for me. I got interviewed there, and I thought, hey, I kind of want to do this. So uh, shout out to both those guys, Seabros Fishing, Tricks of the Trade podcast. If you're interested in more fishing cycle content, uh, you can find us there. Thank you very much. Super appreciate it. Tight lines. Aloha.